You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. As we wake up to a new normal today and life is slowly grinding to a halt. Now masks are becoming the new normal. Americans are facing a new normal, one that may include losing their jobs, losing their income, and even losing their health insurance. I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. It's time to reject the new normal. Now is the historical moments of time not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. It's time to reject the Great Reset. It's time to support the People's Reset. It's time for the Greater Reset. From January 25th to the 29th, journalists, activists, researchers, and advocates are hosting the Greater Reset Activation a five-day event dedicated to offering an alternative to the World Economic Forum's top-down, centralized, authoritarian vision. Our desire is to help all people find community and liberty by providing practical steps and knowledge for co-creating a world that respects individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and choice. The Greater Reset is the world's collective response to the World Economic Forum's initiative, The Great Reset. We invite you to join us for five days of discussion about the diverse opportunities available for those who seek to live in harmony with humanity and the planet while respecting our innate freedom. Each day is dedicated to a different domain and provides solutions to the WEF's vision. Day one is dedicated to the Agora and decentralized economics. Tuesday the 26th will focus on health and education. Day three will focus on nature, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. Thursday the 28th will highlight the liberating side of digital technology, including encryption, blockchain, and decentralized autonomous organizations. On Friday, January 29th, we will end the event by showcasing examples of intentional communities, freedom cells, and community organizing. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear from some of the most powerful speakers in the world with a focus on solutions. We encourage everyone to organize local watch parties in your area using freedomcells.org. Also, find out more about the Greater Getaway in-person event in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Visit thegreaterreset.org for more information. Okay, we are live. Uh, Let me unmute Derek here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us at the Greater Reset Activation We are super excited to be presenting this wonderful information, and it's all about solutions and getting people inspired and motivated with practical strategies that they can take in their lives in order to find more freedom. The Greater Reset is an initiative of the Freedom Cells Network, which is a network, a decentralized peer-to-peer network of over 13,000 people now that are working together to create more freedom in their lives. And at the end of the day, what I like to share is that we are actually trying to create a free society, a free society as the existing structure 
the existing institutions crumble all around us. So the Freedom Cell Network, it's all about decentralized small groups working together. We have an amazing model that can scale horizontally. We have 13,000 people now. We're going to have 100,000 people, a million people. So what the Greater Reset aims to do is respond and give people practical steps to respond to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, right? Everyone has been aware for quite some time that there's been a lot of tyranny in the United States and all across the globe. And I want to welcome everyone to this program from all across the world. We are so excited for you to be joining us. And this really is a global movement. You know, it's not just the tyranny that people have become familiar with and come to expect from government, from multinational corporations, from tax exempt foundations, secret society roundtable groups, right? But now with COVID 19, we have a whole new, we're entering a whole new era of technological tyranny, uh, a new world order 2.0, so to speak, technocracy. And really that's what the Great Reset is all about. It's the World Economic Forum's marketing plan, essentially, a repackaging of a lot of the same ideas that they've been pushing for quite some time. They being those, the parasitic class, as Derek Bros refers to them, uh, people that want to control other people's lives. And there's a lot of not great things in store. The fourth industrial revolution essentially aims to create a surveillance panopticon society where human beings are tracked and traced, not just human beings, all life forms, all biodiversity with planetary supercomputers, something Microsoft's working on. They want to reshape the relationship between government and the individual. They want to reshape how business works, entrepreneurship works. And we're going to be hearing a lot about what the Great Reset has in store. But more importantly... And this is the big focus and this is the big emphasis. We want to offer solutions, proactive steps that you can take in your lives. We're not going to get overwhelmed by the problem. We're going to study it and we're going to understand it so that we can strategize and we can overcome it. We can insulate it, right? It's a dual purpose approach. We want to insulate and protect ourselves from this technocracy, from the surveillance society. But more importantly, we want to create an entirely new system, an entirely new way that humans can relate to one another through voluntary interaction, through decentralization, through harmonious relationships with our fellow human beings, our fellow life forms on this planet and with the earth, right? The Great Reset talks about poverty and environmental problems. And the solution is centralization, control, global, global governance, cap and trade, carbon tax, right? We are concerned with poverty. We're concerned with having peaceful human relationships. And we're also concerned with environmental problems. But our solutions are based on permaculture. They're based on local food systems and food production, right? And we want to help lift people out of poverty by giving them more opportunity, more freedom, by encouraging entrepreneurship. The theme for today is the Agora, okay? And essentially, that's the open market of free people cooperating and working together. Each one of these days has a theme, and the World Economic Forum is meeting virtually, not in Davos, Switzerland, as they usually do. They're meeting virtually as a big promotional campaign for the Great Reset. And so we thought we would counter them with the same thing. Each day, we're going to be discussing a different topic, a different theme. Tomorrow, we'll talk about health and education, critical components of building a free society, raising young, healthy, smart, critical thinking young children. Um, on Wednesday, we're going to be talking about nature and how we can live harmoniously with nature. And then on Thursday, we're going to talk about the liberating side of technology, 
blockchain, decentralized blockchain. There's going to be some controversy because the Great Reset and these architects of the New World Order 2.0 also want to leverage blockchain technology. But we want to use blockchain technology in a decentralized way for privacy, ownership of your information, um, overcoming censorship, right? We're going to talk about encryption. We're going to talk about all sorts of great technologies. And then finally, we're going to wrap it all up on Friday by talking about decentralized free sovereign communities. We're really going to educate you guys about the Freedom Cell Network and hope that you join, again, over 13,000 people globally. We're going to talk about how applications can help people to govern themselves. And we're going to hear from some folks that are doing the Freedom Cell Network all across the world, some of their best practices. Uh, later up, coming up today, we're going to have a panel on agorism. We're going to hear from some folks about some new forms of economic systems. We're going to close off the evening with James Corbett. And uh, well, I want to thank you for tuning in. We had some technical issues to get started. It looks like the greaterreset.org. Um, you know, I, we knew that this was going to be a popular thing. So please bear with us as we try to get the site load up so you can watch the stream there. But if you're tuned in on Facebook or YouTube, please share this with your friends, these streams. We want to encourage people to use these alternative technologies. But at, this, at the end of the day, YouTube and Facebook sure can handle the load, it appears. So if you had some friends that were going to be tuning in on the website, we want to invite you to check them, check us out here on the YouTube stream and on the Facebook, the Conscious Resistance, and the other channels that we're on. Okay. Again, we're off to a late start. We're going to we're going to get things going smoothly today, but we are super excited and honored to have our next guest. This is a woman that has do, been doing a lot of work to expose United Nations Agenda 21. She wrote an amazing book Behind the Green Mask. It's not just about education, right, which is super important, but she got active in ho her local community in a city in Northern California, and she really pushed back on a massive development. At first, she didn't know that it was Agenda 21 that was creeping behind it, but it just didn't make sense for her. What's going on? What's with all this top-down control stuff? Why are they putting up so much resistance? She peeled back a layer or two and discovered it was the United Nations Agenda 21. And as we'll discover from her talk, there is a lot of overlap between the Great Reset, Agenda 21, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So without further ado, we would like to introduce to you Rosa Corey, who is going to talk to us about Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. Thank you so much for joining us, Rosa. We're going to turn the floor over to you. And I know that you had a prepared presentation, so go ahead and just do your normal thing that you were going to do, even though we're okay. starting just a little bit late. Thank you Great. so much. Hey, thanks a lot, John. And I want to say hi to everybody. I'm I'm so pleased to have been invited to participate in this. Um, well, let's just say it. This is an historic conference. This is the confluence of iconoclastic thinkers and creators of the greater reset. Because, you know, in this time of stress and anger and fear and separation and limitation, we need to break out of the paralysis and the panic that's imposed on us and break into a set of positive workable solutions that could bring us closer together in respect and love. So I know that's what we're all excited to be participating in today. It's the declaration of taking back control of our life's direction. So as John said, my role today is to set the stage for the greater reset by looking at the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, the Fourth uh, Industrial Revolution, the UN Agenda 2030, and of course the larger plan within which all of this revolves, which is United Nations Agenda 21 Sustainable Development. We're, we can agree that 
we're witnessing the great purge. It's the great concentration of wealth and power, the great reveal of willing dictators, the great reallocation of resources, the great digital revolution of the surveillance state. This is the agenda for the 21st century and beyond. It's the great rehash of the old plan. So I'm going to start there. Um, UN Agenda 21, Sustainable Development, is the comprehensive blueprint. It's the action plan, as the UN calls it, to inventory and control all land, water, minerals, plants, animals, construction, means of production, energy, education, transportation, information, and all human beings in the world. It's an inventory and control plan. This is the agenda for the 21st century. It's a blueprint for 100 years. And there are milestones at 2020, 2030, 2035, and 2050. Agenda 2030 is just a milestone within the main 100-year plan. So Agenda 21 Sustainable Development is the global plan for inventory and control. It encompasses every aspect of your life, and it's intended to be a wrenching transformation of your life. That's what Senator Al Gore called it when he, um, when he took the United States uh, sort of group to the largest gathering of heads of state and national representatives that had ever been convened up to that time. That was in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 1992 for the Agenda 21 conference. Representatives of 178 nations plus the Vatican agreed to this action plan. So yeah, I know you're gonna see on Wikipedia that it says it's a non-binding voluntary agreement uh, except Agenda 21 is binding on you. It's been written into the laws of your countries, um, all the way from China, all Western and Middle Eastern nations, all over the world, through a collaboration of government, corporations, and organizations, and foundations. It's a global plan, but it's not an international plan. International means between nations. But this plan erases nations. It's global. It's a global plan that's implemented locally. So it has a different name everywhere, but it's the same plan. Every aspect of your life is affected. So it's in your school curricula. It's in your planning and building department. It's in your court system, in your healthcare system. It's everywhere. But they never call it Agenda 21. You're going to see it as regional plans often that are called Plan Bay Area or Four States, One Vision, or Mexico 2030, or Hanoi 2030, or Horizon 2050 in Canada, for example. They're all the same plan. They elevate major economic power centers to a supra-governmental status that is outside of and above the traditional representative government model. These are the mega regions. They drive the economy and they overpower the nation state. They combine parts of cities, of states. They even combine pieces of nations together. They destroy boundaries and they ignore legal jurisdictions by creating new economic princedoms. These are new fiefdoms. 
It's not government. It's governance. Governance. It's a system made up of public sector agencies, nonprofits, business organizations, advocacy groups, foundations, and corporations. What do they have in common? You don't vote for any of that. The larger the entity, the further away it is from you, the less power you have. You get literally taken out of the picture. This is the new global state in which you are a global citizen. Okay, so the new state is the means by which you have to serve others for the common good, and that's defined by the state. It's supposedly from the bottom up. It's something you want. But really, it's an end run against your around your sovereignty. It's your sovereignty is eroded piece by piece. So, you know, the question is, what is the Agenda 21 plan? When you see it in public, in the public, it's primarily a land use plan. It's the rallying cry, you know, for sustainable development. What do they say? That we're killing the planet with our CO2 emissions. So the plan is designed to corral populations into what the UN calls islands of human habitation, human settlements. Of course, once you're in that concentrated island of human habitation, formerly called a city, you're more easily managed, controlled, and surveilled. It might be a city like the one that Sidewalk Labs, a subsidiary of Google's parent company, Alphabet, a city like they had planned for the area, an area of Toronto. That city was to have had sensors embedded everywhere, literally, and the residents would have their services restricted unless they exposed every aspect of their lives digitally. If, for example, as a resident, you refused to have your data linked to your identity, you would have less rights than others. This is a smart city. It's a city where I believe virtual and augmented reality will replace real life and actually be more, more appealing. Ultimately, people may spend their entire lives living virtually, and those lives are going to be short. So what's the justification for this dystopia? The story is that your greenhouse gas emissions will be reduced by consolidating populations into these dense city centers where energy and water usage can be limited. This is going to get you out of the rural areas where you can basically do what you want, raise your livestock, um, grow food with water from your well, drive your farm truck and own a firearm. But uh, in order to implement Agenda 21, your country, state, county, parish, canton, city, whatever, is imposing this land use plan locally. Because think about this. Where you live has a lot to do with how you live and what your life will be. So your old life has to be transformed. Transform, that's code for destroyed and rebuilt. That's the new normal. This includes both what they call the built environment and the way that you use that physical space. Your beliefs and your expectations have to be transformed and rebuilt as well. Your energy use, water use, food consumption, social structure, work, health, and your life expectancy views, all of that has to be transformed. And much of that is determined in that regional plan that you've got right there where you live. I suggest you check it out. So how do they destroy your rights? You don't vote for it. You do pay for it, though. 
that regional plan gets paid for with federal and state grants that pay for consultants who basically contract to push this through the community. And the few concerned citizens who show up to the visioning meetings and the charrettes, as they call them, to object, the consultants are there to block opposition. They're basically there to indoctrinate the public. The consultants are trained change agents and organizational managers. They're there to give the impression that they've listened to the public and the public approves the plan. But it's all an act. I think you're going to agree that this is a real big deal. It's a tough sell and a huge management problem, even with the deception and the, colli- and the collusion of the corporate media. I should say the partnership, the ownership. It's not easy to destroy nearly 500 years of the nation state. So it has to be done incrementally using all of the power and influence of government, corporations, and organizations, including all tech, entertainment, media, and education. This is a media mega corporate plan, a totally mega corporate plan. It's a joint partnership. It's a public-private partnership between government, the world's largest corporations, banking conglomerates, the big money foundations like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, groups like the World Wildlife Fund and the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. It's a closed circle. It only includes you when you agree with their plan. Of course, that's what's meant by getting the approval of the community. The community is anyone who agrees with the plan. If you don't agree, you're not the community. Dissent is not permitted. These major foundations, they give grants to thousands of startup organizations. They train and they fund spin-off groups like, that look like benevolent nonprofits and neighborhood associations. This whole system, it acts as the lower bureaucracy for the new system. And, you know, this is, this is basically an ultimate enemy, the ultimate enemy of the individual. So to make Agenda 21 happen, it requires the full integration of systems in order to control them centrally. That's the standardization of all systems. And the new currency is information and energy. In order to have centralized control, full globalization, it's necessary to standardize all law, all education, all culture, all finance. In order to merge, it has to be standardized. So yeah, this was impossible until the advent of the computer age. Now it's inevitable. This is why every school child is given a computer and the internet is now in tiny villages in every nation. Your educational system is used to manipulate you into thinking of yourself as a global citizen. Yeah, I hope you don't, because a global citizen is not a citizen at all and has no rights. Under UN Agenda 21 Sustainable Development, what's termed a right is really a privilege, and it can be taken away or granted at any time. Of course, conversely, punishment can be imposed without redress. So this explains how the UN can call universal internet connectivity a human right. During COVID, UNICEF, the UN Children's Educational Fund, they created a project called GIGA. And the goal is to get every school in the world to do online classes. And the term for this is direct instruction, 
Nothing comes between the child and the computer. It makes standardized indoctrination really easy. And of course, you all know that as a startup, Google was funded by the intelligence community in order to spy on people who searched specific topics on the internet. So uh, then they could identify those people. Basically, it turns the tables on us and exposes us to surveillance. Now, billions of people voluntarily carry a surveillance device at all times. When you hear the term smart, whether it's a smartphone or smart car or smart, smart home or whatever, this is an acronym, S-M-A-R-T, Sustainability, Monitoring, Assessing, Rating, and Tracking You. GIGA, the Children's Universal Connectivity Project, has digitalized more during 10 weeks of COVID than in the last 10 years. For this, they need 5G. And for that, they need decentralized energy projection. That enables digitalized experimentation and spying on large populations without their consent or knowledge. Sort of a digital colonization. Mega corporations are out there. They're searching for people who add value who are innovators. Corporations want to own innovation. Not everybody has value in this system, this new system. Most of you don't. Most likely you're worth less than your student loan. Your value, your social credit score is based on whether you produce more than you consume and whether you serve or obstruct the state. Government has overcome our constitutional rights by merging with private corporations who can operate without restraint in secret, punishing, purging, and disappearing dissidents like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Amazon have done virtually. This is globalization. Globalization erases the boundaries going from the city all the way up to the nation. It's the end of representative government. Now, you know, I know you might think that government is an obstacle, it's a danger, and it doesn't represent you anyway, so who cares, right? Well, I do know who I'm speaking to here, and actually I agree. But at least in the United States, government was originally conceived as representative. It was like you were a busy farmer or a merchant, and you elected a representative who agreed to give up a few years of their life to handling that stuff so you didn't have to. These positions were never intended to be lifelong gigs. Now people like Pelosi and McConnell are in government for 50 years. Well, why is that? It's because they keep getting voted in. The money that elects them keeps them there. At the top, power has no party. So what do the globalist controllers want? Agenda 21 is designed for management efficiency. Mega corporations want to have harmonized, integrated laws and regulations, and as few as possible. So they don't have to change their business or retool to sell in different markets. They want no borders and open markets. They want to kill competition, no matter how small, and engineer demand. They want to deal with as few decision makers as possible, ideally just one. They want to merge with government. They want workers suited for the work needed and easily discarded. They want to own innovation, so they want direct connection with universities. 
They want to control all resources, human and natural, because, you know, humans are a resource, or more likely, you're a hindrance. Mega corporations need full control and total information. This is the digital revolution. It's the fourth industrial revolution. It is the great reset. The previous three industrial revolutions mainly focused on energy and hardware. Whether it was steam or gas or electronics, these new energies radically restructured society for the family, all the way from the family, basically to work, to cities, to government, everything completely restructured. This is the fourth industrial revolution now, the digital revolution. It's the explosion of technology moving faster than the speed of ethics and oversight, and it eclipses all previous three revolutions. From, uh, it's from uh, artificial intelligence having the potential to change the nature of the human being to robotics being used for policing to smart buildings and sensors that monitor us continuously. This revolution enables an uncertain future. The fourth industrial revolution in the context of the first three represents a phenomenal acceleration in terms of time and the ability to control the masses, transform and disrupt, build back better. When you hear that, know that you can't rebuild it unless you break it first. They call it the new social contract, the one you didn't agree to, the great reset com concept that you, you won't own anything, you'll rent anything you need. You've got to look at that through the lens of private property. You are your most important private property. To lose ownership of your freedom of speech, of movement, basically of your free will, that means you lose what is most important to you. It reduces your expectations for a full life and forces you into a new era of austerity, of scarcity. That ain't easy. It's not easy to do this. The loss of freedom in the most vital of ways, the independence and privacy of the body and mind, that demands what they call the new normal. You don't come to that place without a major crisis. The self-styled globalist controllers who intend to, just, to you know, totally disrupt the future they considered what kind of a crisis would be necessary to make one world governance a reality, one that expands beyond the corporations into our homes and our bodies. The way I look at it, global crisis requires a global response, and that justifies global governance. It really takes a major crisis, a global crisis, to break the identification with your nation and your culture something like climate change, right? It, it creates an existential terror that we're destroying the planet and our entire way of life is a threat to its continued existence. Hey, that ain't science. Science is made to fit the desired result in this situation. It is the green mask. So behind that mask of environmental concern, you find the lust for global, centralized, totalitarian control. The climate change threat is a stage, it's a phase. It's designed to prepare us for more restrictions and limitations. And now we're experiencing, of course, a much more pervasive and restrictive threat. They brought out the big gun. The new existential threat is COVID-19. 
In fact, the World Wildlife Fund says that COVID is, quote, nature's response to man's abuse of the environment, <laughs> unquote. Are they serious? Yeah, nature is a terrorist. So invisible, colorless, odorless, scarcely detectable, COVID is the new mask for the new normal. 9-11 was the justification for the security state. COVID enables the surveillance state. COVID justifies global enforcement. Truly tailor-made for the new world order. COVID has issued in house arrest, purges of truth tellers, economic collapse, the full empowerment of these mega corporations. And of course, how could I forget the willing, the lineup of the willing, the willing dictators from Macron in France to Ardern in New Zealand, to Trudeau in Canada, to Harris in the US, to Cuomo, Newsom, Whitmer, Garcetti, Lightfoot, and dozens of others all across the world. In the competition for the rule of the mega regions, the willing collaborators are stepping up, locally as well, of course. And this is really what the last four years have been about. Separate the wheat from the chaff, the loyal from the dissidents. That's how it's done. Mao Zedong did this in China with his Let a Hundred Flowers Bloom campaign. He encouraged his loyal followers to critique his programs so that he could make them better. But really, he did it to identify and purge his critics, which he did. So what I'm talking about here is power. Those with power want to keep it. Those without it want it. There have always been people who wanted to control the world. What's changed is the capacity for control has expanded in velocity and scope in a way that has never before been possible. So now, as I conclude, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be brave, to find the joy in simply being alive. Ask yourself, what do I value? Recognize, you know, you yourself are part of the reason that we're in this situation. Have you preferred convenience to liberty? The free world requires liberty with responsibility, and that takes work. The work we do can be full of pitfalls, full of controlled opposition, which appears to be the answer, but instead is a sort of a greenwashed, candy-coated, twisted circle of propaganda that goes back to the green mask. So you've got to stop and think. Never go along to get along. Know that there will be no Switzerland in this new world. No place to hide. So the time to resist is now. Refuse to collaborate. Don't carry a smartphone. Don't volunteer to give your biometrics or DNA. Don't cooperate. Opt out while you can. And please, prepare to work, to stay free. It takes all of us working to make this happen. Above all, my friends, remember who you are. Laugh, dance, and love. And join us in creating the greater reset. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, who, wherever you're listening from, we have thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of watch parties taking place right now across the world. Uh, I'm going to look this way. Shout out to Rosa Corey for being here with us tonight. We really appreciate that. And I hope you guys 
appreciated that message. Sorry for the delays. If you have friends that are trying to watch on at home, we are working on the greaterreset.org live stream, but we've listed all the other places. We have backed it up because some of you may have heard we had some attacks the last couple of days. Our websites, several of our websites and servers were attacked, and it's just been an interesting week getting prepared for this. But either way, we're happy to be here. We're thankful that we have people listening all over the world, and people are going to be waking up in Europe and listening to this tomorrow as well, so that's exciting. So we're going to continue our discussion. As John said earlier, we're talking about the Agora. This whole week, we called it an activation, not a conference, not a festival. We've all been to those because we really want to highlight from today to Friday night that this, this event and what we're trying to encourage, those of you who are here live, those of you who are watching online, that we don't want you to just listen to these calls and then go back to the same old thing. I, I've spoke at festivals and conferences for years, and every time it's great, people get together, they hang out in beautiful places, and then the weekend ends, and we just go back to whatever we were doing before. And often it feels like so much momentum is lost or it just goes nowhere because there's no kind of direction. So we are encouraging people to see this very much as an activation, not simply a, uh, another event to be at and hang out with your friends. Really, today, what, if I could invite everybody who I'm here with today and everybody listening at home, wherever you're at, to really think about the solutions that are presented. Rosa is our beginner speaker, and each day we're kind of taking this theme where the first speaker is going to talk about the, the problems. What is the World Economic Forum trying to do in all these areas? Now, we're going to start with John Bush in a second, and John, myself, Charles Eisenstein, James Corbett, and some other folks we're going to have a panel on. We're going to focus on, well, what do we do now? We've heard a little bit now about Agenda 21, 2030, the Great, Re the great Reset, but what can we actually do? That's what this activation is all about. So please listen to the speakers. And some of us live here in Mexico. Some of us came from elsewhere. Wherever you're from, please take the best of the ideas that apply to you and, and take them home with you and incorporate them into your local community. That's the only way we're going to see this international change really taken on is if we start to get activated in our community. So I just want to say that. And uh, let's go ahead and bring on John. We're going to bring on my buddy John Bush. For those of you who don't know, John Bush is an Austin-based activist, been there his whole life, Central Texas, I believe. I met John 10 years ago, 2011, September 11, 9-11, 2011 in New York City, one of the first interviews I've ever did. And John is the person who introduced me to freedom cells, agorism, to a lot of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today. And um, not so many people know his work, but I invite you to get to know his work because he's doing great work. He's doing wonderful things. And so without further ado, we're going to pass it off to John Bush. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Derek Bros. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm so excited to have have had influenced Derek because the guy is like a freaking activism machine. And I pulled back from my activism and focused on my family and some entrepreneurship. And I always felt content knowing because I had this little tension and anxiety where I was like, I need to be doing more for the cause of freedom. But I thought, like, I got to take care of my family and make some money, and I feel okay because Derek Bros's message is so on point, and he is out there just knocking some haymakers, just knocking it out of the park all the time. Okay, so, wow, Rosa Corey just really nailed some solid information there, and it was like 30 minutes, super succinct and very thorough. So I want to thank Rosa Corey, and I want to thank every single person that's going to be speaking on this virtual stage and in-person stage because – we have really assembled an all-star lineup of people that are going to be delivering some very solid and important perspectives. And as Derek said, it's all about activation, inspiration, doing things, right? Not behind the computer, although we thank you for joining us today behind the computer, or hopefully you're at a watch party in person. 
but it's all about getting out into the world in real life, right? They call it IRL, getting out in real life and meeting people and mingling with people and building. There's all this controversy and tension and there's so much discussion and debate about strategies. What are we going to do? How do we get from here to there? And for the past decade, that's what my activism has been focused on. Alternative institutions. I used to call them parallel institutions, right? Um, I've been an activist since 2002 and got involved with like 9-11 truth activism and the whole conspiratorial view of history and probably annoyed quite a few people, my old high school buddies and stuff, just pounding away at all that. And I learned about libertarianism from the good Dr. Ron Paul. And after his campaign in 2007, 2008, uh, we started a political action committee here in Central Texas called Texans for Accountable Government, still around to this day, doing a lot of great work. And we focused on police brutality, police accountability, pushing back on the surveillance state, specifically the Department of Homeland Security fusion centers. And, you know, we pushed back on excessive spending at the city level, started giving speeches about Agenda 21 back in 2010, 2009 to the Austin City Council, warning them of what was to come and what they were really involved in. And, you know, we had some political victories. We managed to stop police officers from being trained to do blood withdrawals in the city of Austin. That was pretty cool. We got some solid privacy policy language on the Fusion Center in Austin. Fusion Centers are these information gathering, intelligence sharing networks that were brought about by the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 with the Department of Homeland Security and the Patriot Act and the the John Warner Defense Authorization Act, all this crazy stuff. And we managed to get some language in there where they couldn't collect information or share information based on someone's political, religious, or social views. And we thought this was great. These were great victories. But as I took a step back and started to think about that critically, I began to realize that in fact, We weren't creating more freedom in our lives. We were merely slowing the growth of tyranny ever so slightly. And in the time, energy, money, resources it took for us to do that, we could have been doing something else. We could have been doing something more effective, in my opinion. So I started exploring what is is it that we can do? And I learned about agorism, revolutionary market anarchism. It was first iterated by Samuel Edward Konkin, who was a libertarian thinker. He wrote this awesome book, The New Libertarian Manifesto. And it's all about competing with the system instead of competing within the system, right? He also talks about counter-economics, creating alternative economies, alternative markets, alternative networks that operate outside of the purview of the state. And this has never been more important with the growing technocracy, Agenda 21, Great Reset that we see. They're forcing us outside of the status quo system by saying we can't travel or fly unless we have a COVID vaccine or an immunity passport green light, or you can't enter the grocery store. You might be able, you might not be able to be employed. Well, you know what? Maybe we don't want to use your damn GMO grocery stores anymore. Maybe we prefer to produce our own food on our land or to grow our own resilient food networks, right? Maybe we're going to create our own airlines like the Freedom Airways we're going to hear about from Ms. Cahill later on. So I started exploring these ideas and agorism really stood out for me. And I started focusing on how can we get from here to there? And I would like to share with you some of the strategies that I've come up with. This is what I'm going to be doing in my life. 
This is what I'm hoping many of the folks in the Freedom Cell Network will come along with. And I'm hoping that you will join us today because I think it's a really solid way to get from here to there. Where is here? Tyranny, division, technocracy, surveillance. And where is there? Freedom, an environment where human beings interact with one another and relate to one another based on mutually beneficial voluntary associations, not top-down coercive hierarchical control grids and paradigms where one group of people, those in power, the parasitic class as bros calls them, they leverage and live off of everyone else, right? And we have this monopolistic institution where everyone's forced to participate. And if your group's in power, you're all excited. Our guy's in power. We can now push our own policies on everyone else. But if the other guys are in power, you're like, we're going to freak out and go storm the Capitol, right? So I want to share some ideas with you. And, And essentially, it all centers around being proactive, not reactive, not caught in a reactionary paradigm where we're focused on the election of the day or the politics of the day or the latest meme or the latest idea that the media wants us to focus on. No, we're focused on our own destiny, our own path, our own journey together, collectively. Okay? So, essentially, here's how I think we could find freedom in our lifetimes. And if not in our lifetimes, at least our children's lifetimes. I do want to say one thing, actually. I am a big believer uh, in the importance of mindset, okay? And while we do have a whole lot of tyranny and terrible things taking place, I mentioned some of it in the introduction earlier. Rosa Corey covered some of the stuff. Really, what we choose to focus on is the reality that we create, right? And I think I believe in that metaphysically and scientifically as well, our reticular activating system. Literally, if we choose to focus on something, we can't focus on everything all the time, but we can choose what we focus on. And if we choose to focus on the freedom and beauty and unity and the wonder of the human experience, then we will enhance our lives immensely and we won't be caught in an overwhelming trap where we've been just researching on the internet till we're blue in the face. We're destroying our family relationships because they don't buy into our way of thinking and they're all upset with us because we just won't shut the hell up at the dinner table, right? No, we focus on the beauty. Kids playing together, taking a plant from seed to fruit and sharing it with our fellow human beings, right? We focus on the beauty because in a large majority of our lives, we're living free. We make choices as far as what we do in our lives. And the question is, what are we going to do about that little bit of tyranny that seems to be growing and growing? So what are we going to focus on? At the end of the day, I believe the solution lies in community, in networks, in people working together for mutual aid, for mutual defense, and achieving common goals. And that's exactly what we're aiming to do with the Freedom Cell Network. The Freedom Cell Network, it was an idea I came up with in 2014, Um, Right around the same time when I'm starting to hypothesize and strategize, what is it? There's so many people, this voluntarist community, right? A lot of folks that are into the idea of anarchism, which is the absence of rulers, right? And we're like, we want to live free, but there's so many people that don't live free and that continue to participate in these coercive paradigms, even though they don't want to. So I started thinking, well, what, what is it that we're missing here? And I came to the conclusion that it's strength in numbers, right? The lone wolf, the lone guy that's not going to pay his taxes or that tries to stand up to the police officer that's brutalizing someone. He gets a felony. He gets arrested. He has his property taken away. But what if there's 10,000 of us, which there is now 13,000 actually in the Freedom Cell Network? What if there's 100,000 of us? What if there's a million of us that all are working together 
right? And as I talked about earlier, there's this dual paradigm where we want to protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from traditional tyranny and from the incoming technocracy that's growing at such an alarming rate. But we want to create alternatives and we want to create an environment. We want to create institutions and systems and networks where we as human beings can live together and we can fulfill our nature as free, beautiful human beings, right? And that's what the Freedom Cell Network aims to do. It's essentially agorism in action because we're building an agora. We're building a market. We're building a community, a network of free people that are cooperating together. And it's a very beautiful thing. It all centers around the inner cadre group of approximately eight people. We choose the number eight. There's some research by this guy, John David Garcia. He found that eight people is the optimal number of people for maximum creativity. So you get your group of eight, inner cadre group, work together on common goals, having food storage, uh, coming together and having a network of people that can defend one another if they need to, having off-grid communication, having encrypted communication, having a bug out plan. The goals are really up to you. We just like to start by encouraging those goals because we're living in some trying times and it's good to be prepared. But you could have a Freedom Cell group that works together on homeschooling for the kids. Your goals are we're going to chip in and buy a homeschool curriculum. We are going to divvy up the time that's spent with the children, teaching the children. We're going to do a weekly field trip. We're going to have a weekly meeting with the parents so they can do a support group and talk about what's working in their family, what's not working. We can share ideas. You can have a spiritual freedom cell group where the goals are we're going to do yoga together. We're going to meditate together. We're going to all read this great book by Thich Nhat Hanh together and discuss it, right? And uh, we're going to have a little accountability group. You can have a mastermind for entrepreneurship. You can do whatever the heck you want. But the point is working together with a small group can really enhance the effectiveness and creativity and help you to implement and achieve goals, right? But here's where the magic comes in. Take that group, intercontinent group around eight people, and you link up with seven other groups of around eight people. Now you have what we call a middle cadre. Perhaps it's spread out around Southeast Travis County, for example, spread out around a state in the beginning. Then you link up with other middle cadres of approximately 64 people and you form what we call a meta cadre, which is around 512 people. Maybe it's spread out throughout the state, right? And the beauty of this network and this decentralized nature is that as the community and as the numbers scale, it scales horizontally. Not vertically with hierarchy, coercion, bureaucracy. Who loves bureaucracy? Let me see it in the comments. But it scales horizontally, maintaining the decentralized nature so that no one can come corrupt the institution or cause a bunch of problems or take control or co-opt things, right? It's all decentralized. And I think it's a very beautiful thing. And like I said, this isn't just an idea. It was an idea that I had. And we had an intercadre group back in the day in 2014, 2015, kind of fell apart due to infighting, which is why... Effective communication, nonviolent communication, being conscious, self-conscious, right? Self-reflection is extremely important. Being a mature, emotionally mature person and being able to take constructive feedback really has a lot to do with everything. But it was just an idea back then. And then old Derek Bros resonated with him and he took it and spread it, right? And then it grew to around 1,000 people. And that's about how many people were involved before COVID-19. Then COVID-19 hit everyone realizes that this crazy tyranny and crazy technocracy that we're learning about has been accelerated immensely. And so too did the numbers of the group accelerate as well. Now we have over 13,000 people. If you haven't joined yet, I strongly encourage you to go to freedomcells.org, freedomcells.org, 
sign up, put the skills you're involved in, the things that you can offer the community, put what you're looking for, and then you can add yourself to a member map. Don't put your address, but put your maybe the park down the street or the coffee shop down the street, and you will be able to find people in your area working together. Okay, so we have this foundation, foundation for a free society, I like to say, and uh, we're all working together, we're all jiving together. Now, let me take it a step further because I talk about this and everyone's like, you guys are going to get destroyed by the man and that you're just putting yourself on a map to be taken down by infiltrators or the government, right? And I, it's interesting. I talked about you know law of attraction and mindset earlier. I think there's something about someone about their mindset when we're bringing up these great ideas about how we can build a flourishing, beautiful, harmonious community and do some really cool stuff. And their first thought is fear. And well, what's going to happen? And then, and it's that fear that leads to inaction. It's also the path to the dark side, if you may or may not know that. Um, and so what I want to convey is that perhaps just like with cryptocurrency, sometimes it's riskier not to get involved because if you stay with fiat currencies, right, the fiat currencies are more of a risk. Or the old adage, it's better to have a gun and not need it than to need a gun and not have it. It's better to have a freedom cell network and not need it than to need a freedom cell network and not have it. And perhaps it's more risky to be the lone wolf that gets pulled over and harmed by the police or the CPS gets called because the parents use plant medicine. It's better to have a network. It's more risky not to have a network. I just want to throw that out there. But I do have a path. I got about 10 minutes. We're actually back on time. Rosa Corey was very sweet and succinct. And even though we started a little late, we're back on the schedule. So we're going to keep things nice and tight. So to kind of share how I think we can get from here to there. Rosa Corey talked about the smart cities. Okay. And the Great Reset and Agenda 21, 2030, Sustainable Development Goals. They're really going to execute a lot of their plans in these smart cities. Uh, part of Agenda 21 is to make it difficult to live in rural areas, and eventually they want to roll out this wildlands project where they completely section off entire portions of the Earth's surface, no human use, right? Only animal wildlife, which sounds nice and peachy, but at the same time, part of that goal is for the human beings to be herded into these compact cities, the smart cities with 5G technology, track them and trace them, pinging you with your cell phone or implantable microchip in the future, which has already happened around the country. It's not crazy, not this country so much, but other countries, not crazy conspiracy theory stuff. And so the smart cities are where a lot of this tyranny and control is going to happen. And so I want to invite people to get out of the cities and I'd like to show you a little example of what the World Economic Forum has in store for you guys. And then I want to share how I think we can counter it. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen here right quick. So this is an article maybe many people are familiar with. The original title was Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Can you believe it? <laughs> This was the original title. It was published in Forbes. It was also published in the World Economic Forum's website. But they switched it up on the World Economic Forum to here's how life could change in my city by the year 2030. It's a little bit more peachy there. And then they have this little author's note they added after the fact. I want to point out this article is written in 2016, okay? So the Great Reset was iterated more recently as this plan, as this program. But back in the day, that stuff was still going on. They were still pushing for this stuff. Uh, they just started calling it the Great Reset because it's this great marketing plan that they think they have for themselves. But check it out. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city. 
I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense for us in this city. Everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free. So it ended up not making much sense to own much. This is what they have in store. Okay. And again, this author's note, they're like, it's not my intention that this is exactly what we're going to do. This is just what could happen. But when you study what the fourth industrial revolution is, when you study how they want to reshape society, how they want to reshape the relationship between government and individual, the relationship that people have financially and economically, we're going to hear from Julianne Romanello about this crazy stuff called like impact finance, pay for success, impact investments, human capital bonds. Like they literally want to make people into commodities and manipulate and mold children. It's called the P20 pipeline, where you have preschool kids all the way to PhD, tax exempt foundations come in, investing tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, impact investing. They want to have an impact and have a desirable outcome like we're going to mold these children. This is what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She discovered it. She'll tell you all about it here uh, tomorrow. They want to mold these children so that they can be cogs in the machine of the fourth industrial revolution and they can further the robotics industry, AI industry, drone industries all taking place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then to make it even nicer, this is, this is part of their whole new version of capitalism that they're rolling out. They're going to have oligarchs, billionaires, wealthy hedge funds place bets on whether or not these outcomes are going to be successful. They're going to long it. It's going to be successful. They're going to play short bets. It's going to fail. This is what's happening right now. When I did an interview with Julianne Romanello, I was like, wow, this great reset isn't something they plan to roll out by 2030. This is something that they are already rolling out. I've been rolling out for quite some time. So it really only underscores the importance of us getting down and getting together. But here's a section in this article that really resonated with me and was kind of an aha moment as far as where, where we should go, what we should do to overcome this, right? So check this out. Environmental problems, the death of shopping. Oh, I like to shop. I like buying cool stuff, right? We're going to hear from some folks later today, too, that have an alternative perspective on, uh, perspective on capitalism. And the cool thing about this greater reset thing is we don't all see eye to eye on everything, but we all agree that we don't care very much for where things are going and that we have a better vision for where things could go and where things will go because we're all powerful human beings that are taking matters into our own hands and we're shaping, playing an active role in the future, not only for us as individuals, but us collectively. But check it out. This is what resonated with me immensely. They live different kinds of lives outside of the city. My biggest concern is all the people who do not live in our city, those we lost along the way, those who decided that it became too much all this technology, those who felt obsolete and useless when robots and AI, over, AI took over big parts of our jobs, those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They live different kinds of lives outside the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities, Others just stayed in the empty and abandoned houses in small 19th century villages. They see that they formed little. So I see that they formed little self-supplying communities. And I'm like, hey, that sounds great. That's what I want to do. Right. And so here's where I'm going with this. I think a fine strategy and I invite you to participate in it along with me would be for us to come together, 
find the others, use the Freedom Cell website, use your local meetup, use your local thing. I know there were some folks that were watching on the YouTube channel earlier. I don't remember what they call their network, something awakening or whatever it was, but they're like a bunch of people are tuning in and then all our friends came to tune in. They already have a nice network and community. We would love to join you and join our communities together. Very beautiful thing. Let's all come together. Let's leave their cities. Let them have the cities. I know cities are a beautiful thing. I used to enjoy visiting New York City. I don't see myself going there anytime soon. Probably going to stick here in Texas. I'll tell you what. Maybe visit old Derek Bros in Mexico, Mexico. But uh, I think we should all come together and we should acquire large plots of land well outside of the city. And we should create a confederation of intentional communities and eco villages where we trade amongst one another. We engage in mutual defense compacts and we just straight up opt out of this technocratic nightmare. And if we have the strength in numbers together to do our own thing, right? We're not going to be crazy, illegal, breaking the law. We're going to grow food. We're going to have little knitting clubs. We're going to raise our kids peacefully, harmoniously. We're going to educate our children without them being put into these public indoctrination camps that we call public government schools. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I am doing. And I strongly invite you to do it along with me. Let's exit their control paradigm. Rose is doing it down in Morelia. There's all sorts of folks in Central Texas that are already building their intentional communities. New Hampshire, the Free State Project, has intentional communities and eco-villages. And tell you what, if your career, you're based in the city, you know what? Let's build that network of people that get each other's back within the city as well, right? It's all about community. It's all about strength in numbers. It's all about us working together to create a new world. We don't have to be passive in the passenger seat with Klaus Schwab driving the car. Don't you love the way we're going? I need to work on my impression there. We can be the drivers in the car. We can be in control of our destiny. We can create the future that we desire. We have that power. We just have to realize it. And it starts with you making a decision. So I invite you to make that decision with me right now. And I, I invite you to make a commitment to yourselves, to your family, to your fellow human beings, that we are going to take the power into our own hands. We are going to accept full responsibility for our destiny and our future. We are going to play an active role in creating the future that we all desire. Because it's what we deserve as human beings. This, this isn't working. The way things were going was not working, right? The whole normal will never go back to normal. I don't want to go back to normal. I certainly don't want to go back to the new normal. But you know what I've realized? My little short stint on this earth, I've realized that I'm a powerful person. And I realize that I can manifest a life of my dreams. And I want you to realize that too. Perhaps you already have. But if you haven't, you need to know, that just as old bro says, you're powerful, you're beautiful, and you're free, right? And there is strength in numbers. There's strength in unity, and there's strength in truth. And when we recognize that, and we come together, there's no stopping us. We will defeat this great reset. We will create a better world for our future generations to enjoy. Thank you so much. That's my spiel. Okay, I was going to write something down, but I thought I'd just preach it from the heart. And uh, I'm so, so glad that you joined us. So I don't know if Derek Bros is listening in, but Derek has a talk up next. And um, a lot of you guys came here because of Derek. This guy is someone that I admire and respect a great deal. 
And more recently with the COVID stuff, I kind of invited myself to participate in this Conscious Resistance Network channel, and he was okay with that. And that helped give me a boost and some excitement to get the word out there. Uh, if you like what I've shared, please check me out at livefreenow.show. But in the past year or so, since this COVID stuff has started, me and Derek always worked together and supported one another throughout the years, the past decade. But we've really been working closely together um, more recently this past year. We've been working together to grow the Freedom Cell Network. We've been working on the conscious resistance. We've been putting out content. And more recently, we came up with this idea for the Greater Reset. And I got to say, this guy is a freaking beast machine. And not only does he has does he have so much output, so much work that he just puts out there to the world, whether it's speeches, articles, videos, I don't know how he does it, but his message is so on point and he's so inspirational and he's a spiritual guy too, which is so important. The conscious resistance, it's really what it's all about. So without further ado, let's bring up old Derek Bros. He is going to talk to you about his ideas surrounding exiting and building. Thank you so much. Peace. Hey, everyone. Thank you guys for being here. One more round for, so John Bush can hear it on the mic. Thank you for John Bush. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Everybody who is in person, everybody who's hanging out with their friends and family right now, those of you who are... I like to move. We're going to try to see if we can do this. Um, those of you who are just wherever you're at, really trying to tune into what's happening right now. There are so many important things happening in our world, and... So many of them have nothing to do with politicians. So many of them have nothing to do with the daily distractions of the capital this or the fear of that. So before I start, my talk is called, It's Time to Exit and Build. But I really just want to take a deep breath with you guys. Can we do that first? Wherever you're watching, if you're at home, let's just do this. The count of three, let's take a nice deep breath. One, two, three. Let's get one more in. One, two, three. We have people tuned in all around the world right now working to manifest a better reality than what we are facing. And this has been a, just a beautiful journey that I've been on the last 11 years to get to this point and wherever we're going after this. I mean, I just want to say thanks first to everybody here from our friend Ceci, who is local, support her, buy her food, to all of the volunteers, everybody who helped volunteer to make this happen. This is a completely volunteer-run effort, everybody from John back in Texas to us here, so I just want to acknowledge that every graphic you're seeing, everything you're seeing on screen was completely done by volunteers who just wanted to help out. This was what we're capable of. All of you made this happen. We co-created together, and I think that's important to acknowledge. So yeah, my name is Derek Bros. I'm originally from Houston, Texas. I'm 36 years old. I do journalism. I do documentaries. I write some books. Tonight's talk is going to focus on my most recent book called How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State. And it was in that book, which I released January 31st, 2020, right before COVID hit. It was in that book where I discussed this strategy that I felt, I felt was important to everything we were facing. Because see, for me, I've been paying attention to this, like many of you, way prior to COVID. It didn't take COVID-19 for me to see that facial recognition was growing around the world, that the surveillance state was growing around the world, that the government increasingly sees free people of all stripes, whatever you identify as, as the enemy, that the corporate state is working together to fleece the people, all the things we could spend hours and hours, and we probably have spent hours and hours researching. I've seen all this stuff coming. So I started thinking last year, how do we continue to be free and thrive in a world where... There's social credit scores. 
facial recognition, you know, this where they are trying to make it increasingly difficult to survive and to thrive because I don't want to just survive. Who here wants to thrive? Anybody want to thrive, do more than just scrape by? Yeah, me too. So if you want to thrive outside of their system, you could already see what was coming. And then COVID happened. And then they turned everything up to 11. And it was like, well, now we're all hearing the talk of immunity passports. We're hearing about the vaccines and things that whether you're for them or not, at the end of the day, what we believe is that you should have the freedom of choice to decide what you put in your body, what you do with yourself, etc. However, we are living in a world that is increasingly making that difficult to do so. So I started to think, how are we going to thrive? And I came to three pretty simple, but I think we can probably bring everything back to these three main things. Here's your three options facing the world that we are facing right now. One, you can exit and build, which is what we're going to focus on today. Two, you can hold down the fort, which is, well, I'll explain what that means in a moment, just like it sounds. And number three, my, you know, my least favorite, but what some of our friends and family, unfortunately, are going to choose. Apathy and death. Do nothing and watch the world crumble around you. Is anybody in favor of doing nothing and just sort of watching the beautiful world we love crumble around us? Or are we here to get activated to be proactive? I think you're all here to be proactive. I think everybody listening at home are the ones that want to be proactive. So when I talk about exiting and building, it's essentially when you recognize that say you're living in Mexico or Houston or Brazil or wherever in Europe, wherever you may be, you might recognize that the area is less prone to freedom-minded people Maybe it's more prone to invasive police state measures, invasive government, you know, extractive corporations. You might look around your surroundings and say, I don't have so many friends. My freedom cell is not growing. You know, my area is very just anti-freedom. I think I could do better, you know, elsewhere. So you decide to exit and build. I don't like that word bug out that some people use because to me, I think it's the wrong implications because I don't see it as like bugging out like I'm running in fear. I'm acknowledging consciously this might not be the best thing for me. I'm going to exit and build elsewhere. That's what I'm focused on here in Mexico, and I think many people are doing that elsewhere. It might not even mean you need to leave the home country, the state. It could just be a town over, but the point is you recognize for one reason or another, you need to exit and build. Then the second one, holding down the fort. This is a situation that some of us are in where you might realize that where you're at locally is the best bet. Maybe there are problems you're facing, but you've got a community or you've got resources or you just know the area, you know the culture, you know the language, and you decide, okay, I'm going to hold down the fort because we need a combination of both. You know, if we all exit and build and run to the same place, we, we understand the problems of centralization. Putting us all in one place is probably not the best bet as much as we would enjoy it. What we really need is a flourishing of free communities all around the world, decentralized networks of free people coming together to grow their own food, to heal and repair as well spiritually, I think is important. But the point is whether you're exiting and building or holding down the fort, now is the time to start making that decision. Because as I said earlier, the third choice is be apathetic and kind of watch the world around you crumble. Oh, I call it apathy is death. That's what I called it in the book. So that's just, you know, if you want to just do nothing despite all the information that you know and the information you're going to hear over the coming days, that's your choice. But I think most people here are probably interested in one or the other. Can as I'm saying this to you guys, does one pop out in your mind? Like who's interested in exiting building just for the obviously people at home, but a show of hands in there. So some people are thinking exiting building. Who thinks holding down the fort is more likely for you where you're, the community you're currently living in is probably best for you. We got one back there. So the goal though, and that's up for each of you to decide. The goal and what I want to focus on today is, is more on the exit and build side. But I will say that these strategies are applicable whether you choose to stay in Colorado where Taylor's at or stay, you know, wherever you're at. 
The point is that we need to get activated more than ever. I don't think I can reemphasize that. You're probably going to get tired of us hearing that, that word, saying that word activation throughout the week, but I don't think we can overemphasize that enough. Do you see any way that this is just going to turn around without us doing anything? There are trillions of dollars invested into this great reset plan, which is a part of a large, larger overarching plan, and they are working around the clock. They have, they, these people are technocrats. They're social engineers. They've been at this for a minute now. It is us free, beautiful, powerful individuals who are kind of catching up and trying to figure things out, right? But I want to say this as well. We have our ancestors with us. We have our ancestors at our backs. How many of you stop to acknowledge that every single one of us is here right now because of the work that our ancestors did before us? If they didn't do the work they did to survive through those harsh times, wherever, whichever part of the world you're indigenous to, because you're all indigenous and it's important to recognize that, wherever you come from in this planet, our ancestors went through hell to make sure that we could be here alive. What kind of hell are we going to go through to make sure that the future generations, the seven generations and beyond, can, can thrive in. It might be difficult. There might be rough times ahead. I think most of us are anticipating that and seeing that. We're not blind to what we see in the world. But at the end of the day, we have to, we have to push past our doubts, fears, and insecurities. Maybe some of you even felt a little bit of insecure about gathering in person or being around other people. You know, you thought maybe I'll just stay home and watch this by myself or I'll just stay back at the hotel or whatever your situation is. We have to push past that. We all have doubts, fears, insecurities. We all have idiosyncrasies and hangups and things that we could obsess over. And I've spent plenty of time obsessing over them in my life. I've wasted too much time now. And maybe you resonate with that. It's time for us to not to ignore the pains we have, but to put a renewed effort to focus and heal as individuals and as a community and to put more effort than we ever have to taking concrete steps today. The future of humanity literally depends on what we do. I mean, it, it, that might sound cliche, it might sound abstract. No, what you are doing today is going to affect the world at the coming seven generations. And I have two, I have six nieces and nephews, 10, 11 and under, and they're beautiful kids and they're having to go to school wearing masks now. They're having to, you know, and their parents, my, my family, they're just working class people trying to make it. They can't afford to take the, the kids out of school. But if we build community, as we've seen with Freedom Cells and homeschooling pods, there's an opportunity, right? We have strength in numbers. This is where we need to, we have everything we need in our communities already. I've seen this over the last 10 years. I guarantee you guys, wherever you're from, we have all the resources we need. We just need to strengthen those bonds. So if we do nothing, then my nieces and your kids and your, your nephews and everybody else in your family, all the young ones that are coming and the young ones that haven't been born yet are going to grow up in a world that is going to be very unlike the world that we grew up in and probably the world we want for them. And that's just the cold, hard truth. But the beauty of that is it presents an opportunity like never before. Is anybody else a lot, like thankful to be alive at this time in history? I know I wake up every day thankful that, holy shit, I get to do something about it. I get to be alive for this. Thank you. I get to be alive for this time. I get to understand that my words, my actions do have an impact, okay? So just acknowledge that. That's important. You do have an impact. And we do nothing, things are going to get worse. We do something, things are probably going to get worse, but we can help as many people as possible. And for those of us who are proactive now and struggle a little bit now, the beautiful children that are coming up, and in our indigenous traditions, we talk about the seven generations and beyond. We talk about making sure that the steps you take today, you know, the things you throw on the ground, the litter you do, the people you hurt with your words and actions, whatever it is you're doing, good or bad, it is affecting the coming generations after you. That's important to acknowledge. So again, if you spend this week only focused on 
you know, something abstract, not thinking concretely. What can we come away with today? What ideas can you take today and incorporate into your regular existence, to your regular routine? That's what I want to focus on for these last 15 minutes or so here. How do we, how do we really exit from the system? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. And I'm going to say this. I've been warned against this legally, but you know what? At this point, I feel pretty confident. I haven't paid taxes in, since 2010. Never filed, never will again. And, and it's not because I don't like poor people or don't want to help the social systems. It's because I choose to act as an individual. If I see a need in my community, I use my body, my being, my community to say, how can we address that? Rather than thinking the government or the corporations give a shit about us and are going to save us. And I also refuse to fund war. I refuse to fund war. I am sickened by the fact that these people and these positions of power, mainly in the United States and some other Western countries, some of our friends are watching from, continue to fund wars. And it's become such a normal thing. We're here approaching the 20 year of anniversary of 9-11 and people are existing today that weren't even alive then and we're still in those countries and people are still being bombed. People haven't stopped being bombed. There are civilians still being killed by drone bombs. You don't hear about it anywhere on the news, but it's happening. Can we just take a moment of silence to acknowledge that people are dying because the American taxpayer is being forced at the threat of a gun and the threat of violence, jailed by the IRS and others. Because of that system, bombs are being dropped in Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria still. I don't know if I'm ever going to have kids, but I can't raise a child and tell them that I felt like that was acceptable and that I didn't do anything. I can't tell them, I can't tell them that I did nothing. I, I sat by and I watched things get crazier. I watched these systems grow and I chose to participate in them instead of finding a way to exit from them, to opt out from them. That's the strategy I take, take guys. I, I try to opt out of everything. When I, real, when I started to wake up, I just decided I, would, I didn't want to have any relationship anymore, so I stopped dealing with them. We can talk more about that later. I stopped using banks in 2008 because the banks robbed the American people and people around the world in 2008. The banks have funded pipelines. The banks have partnered with governments. We could go all in and on about the problems. And I ask myself, and this is not a judgment on anybody. This is just a moment of reflection. Why would we continue to use those same institutions that rob us blind, that work against us? How do we go out and chant for freedom and for liberty and equality and all these beautiful things and then turn around and shoot ourselves in the foot by funding these systems? And it's difficult. Life has been very difficult for me to be sort of off the grid the last 10 years and to not use a bank account, to not have a pay history, to not have you know all these things that when you go try to get an apartment or something like, hey, can we see your uh, tax record? Uh, I don't pay taxes. Can we see your pay stubs? I get paid in crypto and, uh, you know, PayPal and Patreon donations. Uh, you have a bank account, you know, all these things. And, it's, and it really comes down to they see those systems as trustworthy. They think the banks are trustworthy. The government's trustworthy. So if I have a government piece of paper, it proves I exist. So then the trick should be how do we focus on creating a world where we don't need those institutions to recognize that this person's trustworthy. I can rent to them. I can do business with them. Because that's all it really comes down to. It's all about trust. And on Thursday, we're going to hear from some people talking about the digital technology revolution and how we can use newer technologies to essentially eliminate the need for government and eliminate the need for big banks. I mean, that's the world we're going in. The world is either going to go, we're, how many of you have recognized this fracturing that's starting to happen? Like feeling like you're talking to some friends and family, you're not even living in the same world anymore? I mean, I've felt it for a while, but COVID made it even more clear, right? 
I believe we're witnessing a fracturing. We are witnessing those who trust the official science and the official governments and corporations, they'll get all those products and all those things and we'll see how their health turns out and they'll trust the system and they'll think, well, it's good to survey every, surveil everybody. We should be banning people who say the wrong things. They'll go live in that world. And those of us who choose to exit and build and hold down the fort but still exit from the system, we have an opportunity to decide what's next. What's over there? We don't know yet. We're looking for it. We're trying to find it. We get to build it. We are the ones that get to build it. I mean, there's no more clear time to say that we are the ones we've been waiting for. That is, it couldn't be more true than in this moment. So whatever the build part looks like, John was mentioning intentional communities. That's what we've been doing down here in Mexico, uh, looking for land and trying to build a network of free communities that we call the Conscious Agora. And I want to work with all of you around the world to do this. But I think in order for us to be really successful, this is just my kind of extremist approach, I think we really need to find ways to exit from these systems. And I know many, many of you, I, I get contacted by people and say, I, I, I hear you, Derek, and I agree with you, but I've got a 401k and I've got four kids and I've got debt and I've got a mortgage and these different things, which I don't have. And so I empathize with that because that's not the lifestyle that I grew up in or chose. But you can still take small steps. You can still start pulling yourself out. You can switch from Bank of America and those other you know, horrible banks to a credit union, a local credit union where the money is going to stay in your community. You can do things like that, right? You can start learning about alternative currencies. If you're not comfortable with things like crypto and digital currencies, you can look into, there are plenty of communities that have tried to create real world paper currencies, alternative currencies. You can look into precious metals, barter, et cetera. We're going to hear more about some of these options from Charles Eisenstein in a little bit. The point is that I, I encourage you to take a holistic approach and to start looking at each of each of these different areas of your life. I like to just divide it up like economic, um, looking at your food, and then looking at your relationships. It's kind of a simple start. So look at your economics. How do you make your money? What kind of money you're making and where you're spending at? Those are important questions, right? That sort of can help, you know, if you're, if you're marching against Monsanto, but then you're buying from companies that support Monsanto or use their products, you're working against yourself, right? If you're marching to end the Federal Reserve, but then all we do is use Federal Reserve notes everywhere we go, we're working against ourselves. Like we have to start thinking not just about the reactive aspect, but how do we be proactive? Because I've realized over the years, so much of activism is very reactive. They're building a pipeline over here. Let's go rush over there and protest. They killed somebody over here. Let's go rush over here and protest. They're do, you know, we're just, we're letting them control and dictate where we go. We need to be more proactive. We need to be less reactive and more forward thinking. So if we want to be forward thinking, I encourage each of you to look to just divide your life up into different areas and, and, and take a truly holistic approach. Like I said, economics, look up food. So what is the source of your food? What are you supporting when you buy that food? Whatever your diet may be. I mean, we, I think we all recognize this is one area where we're on the same page of the people pushing the Great Reset is that the systems are unsustainable. The systems are breaking. But guess what? They built it that way. So they could come back and say, hey, we're the saviors that are here to fix everything, and we've got this great plan. It's called the Great Reset. This is how they work, problem, reaction, solution. So they are correct. The systems are unsustainable. Factory farming, industrial farming, shipping food thousands of miles across you know, the country, it is not a sustainable it's not a sustainable system. We have to localize. We have to decentralize. We more, need more local food production. So start looking at your own life and asking, how can I contribute to that system? How can I contribute to localizing, decentralizing my food, my diet, etc.? And then look at your relationships. Uh, are your relationships in line with the values and the things that you claim to care about, right? So I've had to change certain relationships or choose not to work with certain people if their values didn't reflect the values that I'm trying to hold. And that's just that we just got to be real. We all got to know where our principles are. Who here can even identify 
what that means to you. Do you know what the definition of a principle, first of all? Is everybody kind of, what comes to mind? Feel free to shout it out and put it in the chat box. The most important thing you said, the most important thing you think? Morals, it's, a, it's like a compass, right? Your first principles are supposed to be something that you can reflect back to and think. So for me, the principles of non-aggression, the principle of trying to build mutual aid, voluntary relationships are what I care about, right? So I try to make sure that when I'm communicating with other people, when I'm having a relationship with somebody, work, business, romantic, et cetera, whatever, that I am still using the values that I live because it wouldn't be very good of me and I'd basically be fake and a hypocrite to come up here and talk to you but then turn around and treat the people I know like shit. Like, and I've seen a lot of that. So I think that the way we communicate, the words we use, the relationships we have are equally as important to where we spend our money, where we get our food, and are we banking with the enemy? Are we participating in their systems? I mean, I think without think, thinking in these really concrete terms, we're not going to get anywhere. We're going to stay in the abstract of like, yeah, we want to, we, we don't like the, the New World Order, the Great Reset, whatever you want to call it, whatever terminology you use. We don't like them, but uh, we're not really going to do much about it. I'm just going to stay at home and watch YouTube videos all day. And uh, if you guys haven't noticed, it's not working. It's not working. Your wallet is your vote. Your, not only is your wallet your vote, but your actions are your vote. So I don't vote in electoral politics. I don't play that game, but I do vote every single day with my life by the relationships I have, where I spend my money, what I support with that money, how I make my money, what ideas I put out, you know, all of that. And, and none of us are perfect, of course. It's not meant to say, hey, why are you living this way? You're totally out of alignment. But maybe for each of us to have that moment of self-reflection and to say, wow, you know what? I'm thinking about this and I claim that I want to one day live in this beautiful, intentional community, off-grid and things like that. But in my daily life, my habits are out of all, all, all out of alignment with that. I'm not actually taking any steps to get to that goal. I'm just kind of talking about it and hoping that one day it's just going to land in my lap. And in the same way that we plan our goals and we try to think strategically about them, if we envision a future where their great reset vision of total control, domination, monitoring of life from birth to death, tracking and tracing, understand everything you've ate, everywhere you've gone. And if your behavior is not good enough, deducting some points from your social credit score to make sure you can't fly, you can't travel, et cetera. This world is coming in the next two to five years. It's not a distant thing. This is the decade. Agenda 2030, it's 2020. We got probably 10 years or less, but the, the signs are going to start popping up as they already are. And we know they're using COVID as an example to push this. So then if we think concretely, how do we avoid that? What is the alternative? What can we create? If every single person right now, we've got 2,000 plus people. How many? <laughs> okay, I got you. 2,000 people on one feed and thousands on the other. Thousands more that are going to watch this live. If every single one of you hearing this and doing watch parties locally, if we all consciously and concretely think about what are the next steps, can you pull out of the bank account tomorrow? Can you get into a credit union tomorrow? Can you go volunteer at a community garden? Can you start moving forward in that direction? Because if we only think about this abstractly, if we just hang out up here and don't root ourselves down here, we are going to miss the opportunity. And I believe this is the opportunity right now. I'm, I'm not here to say like, hey, if we don't do anything today, this week, nothing's going to happen. But I do think that our creator in this beautiful universe that we're living in has given us an opportunity to change things, to be proactive, to step up to the plate and be the ones that can be a part of the larger journey. And let me, let me start to wrap up with this. John kind of touched on the fact that the change is generational, right? We are lied to throughout our lives. We are told that change comes easy. It comes at the push of a button. Just, I got my I voted sticker. I did my part for change. Or that, oh, well, the president can just pass this thing and that fixes. You know, these are the lies that change comes in some sort of quick fix that all you have to do is just kind of 
vaguely know about a politician's history and just pick red team or blue team and then the world will get better. Obviously, everybody here knows that that's a lie. I believe that the true lasting change is generational. It's gradual, right? How many people here were influenced by their parents or their grandparents? Who set you on this path? Did your grandparents, I know my grandmother, both my grandmothers put me on this path and, and were kind of waiting for me to wake up, I think. We get to play that role to our nieces, our nephews, our grandchildren, our children. We can continue to plant the seeds and help them see what we, what we see because they are already growing up in a world where the things that we remember as children, many of us, like being the, the, just the kind of concept of privacy is very foreign to a lot of people already in the world we're living in. So if we start thinking generationally and we start realizing that the steps we're taking today are going to impact the coming generations and we keep that in mind every day, thinking not only of ourselves, but thinking of the seven generations and beyond, humble yourself to recognize that the actions you take are either gonna make life easier or harder for somebody you've never met and maybe will never meet. Think about that. Who in the future is waiting for us to start taking action right now? I think that's what we need to reflect on is how do we, how do we, how do we move forward and make sure that we are supporting those in the future? I gave a couple of brief examples um, as far as the banks goes and finding ways to avoid paying taxes. I definitely, that is not legal advice. Um, definitely recommend you know doing all the research on that and but there are other simple steps like i mentioned to me food is a big thing permaculture is a really important thing who's here familiar with permaculture the idea of permaculture awesome cool so um i'm in a week away from being certified to teach permaculture so that'll be really cool and i plan to make that information available completely free for anybody who wants to use it because that's what we need we don't need people charging other people five thousand dollars to learn how to do something that could save the world we need to give it away we need to share it as much as possible and as rapidly as possible i think the key is not only localizing and decentralizing our economy our relationships but absolutely our food production systems every single one of you went home to wherever home is and got involved in a local community garden or started planting some seeds in whatever space you got, even if you only got a little window that you can put some potted plants up, start learning that, start getting involved, go volunteer to community garden, start building freedom cells. That's a big concept we're gonna be talking about throughout the week that we'll elaborate more on on Friday. But the point is our salvation is in each other. It's in each other. We cannot do this alone. There are not a single one of us, myself included, who have all the answers, everything figured out, or who can make it on our own, as much as maybe some of us wish we could. I believe that this is our opportunity, that this is our chance to really turn things around. And I'm thankful and I'm humbled that people around the world feel it and can feel the momentum. Do you guys know that we have brothers and sisters all over the world right now? And, and those who will be waking up in a few hours to watch these as soon as they can get out of bed. People, and we had over, I think, 50 countries or so reach out from all around the world. People, we have dozens to potentially hundreds of watch parties taking place right now. We have the momentum right now. We can do something with this. I don't want to see the greater reset just as dissolve into a fun memory you guys had one year, you know, one year from now. I want us to be here one year from now and, and all come back and share all the beautiful things we've done, the gardens we've built, the connections we've made pulling out of their system, learning alternative economics, all of these ideas, that is, what I, that is my hope for what comes out of the Greater Reset and specifically out of today. That each of us can go back to our friends circle, back to our families and can say with an open heart, mom, brother, sister, friend, family, I need you to hear what I need to share. And you share whatever you think is appropriate. But if if we don't get past those doubts, fears, and insecurities I mentioned earlier, if we don't start realizing that now is the time to help the people we love, 
we're going to miss a beautiful opportunity. I don't want us to miss that opportunity. I want us to co-create it and build something beautiful. I appreciate you guys' time. Thank you so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to end the way that I always end. I'm going to end the way that I always end, and then we're going to bring John on. we got a panel. But I just want everybody who's here and those of you who are watching home, if we can, say this affirmation. This is how I end all my talks, and I think it would be great. This vibe is going to fly all around the world right now. So let's take another deep breath. And if you feel inclined, please repeat after me. I am powerful. Oh, we got to do that again. I am powerful. I am beautiful. And I am free. Thank you, guys. Uh, that, now, that was the NSA right there. Um, I really appreciate Derek Bros and his perspective, especially this whole seventh generation concept, because it really puts things uh, into perspective and it gives you a, a, a big picture, right? That our actions today impact future generations. And we really need to turn the tide. And like he said, we do have the momentum. So great job, Derek Bros. I want to thank everyone that's tuned in on DLive, tuned in on Float, tuned in on the several partners that are sharing the stream. I also want to shout out Ramiro and Michael, two of the guys that are doing some behind-the-scenes work. You probably see Ramiro there in Mexico, Mexico, but these guys have been on point doing a whole lot of work to make sure that this stream can be provided for you guys. Ramiro's been doing a lot of work on the Freedom Cells website. Michael's been doing a whole lot of work. So just want to thank all those folks and also thank all the volunteers that have put together these lower thirds and these images and the sweet videos and everything. It's 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 really sweet what everyone's doing. It is a volunteer job. We nobody's getting paid. We don't have we don't have a big budget, but I do want to invite you if you do want to support us, if you appreciate what you've heard today, you can go to thegreaterreset.org, thegreaterreset.org. There's a menu item that says support our work. You can support us with cryptocurrency, Monero, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, tons of different cryptos, Zcash, library if you've got some library credits there, uh, the alternative decentralized uh, video sharing platform. We're going to hear from the creator of library actually on Thursday. So look forward to that. We can also take Venmo payments and last but least uh, credit card and debit card. We'd like to avoid those at all possible, but if that's all, we, we love your support. These funds will primarily go to pay our tech guy, Ramiro, who has really been working tirelessly, doing amazing work. He's getting paid way less than what his value is that he's putting out. So a little bit of money goes a really long way. We'd really appreciate that support as well. Again, that's thegreaterreset.org. Support our work if you feel so inclined. If not, that's cool too. All right, well, we're going to do a panel now on agorism. Today, Today's theme is the Agora, right? The open market, voluntary exchange. And I've referenced to agorism before. We're going to be bringing on two guys that they aren't only experts in agorism, but they are living agorism and really living by example. So we're going to talk about the practical side of agorism because, you know, it's not easy to opt out to participate in the counter economy, right? Um, sometimes it's not convenient, but it's a very beautiful thing. Um, and it's really what we need. You know, one of the very first times that I, we're going to talk about cryptocurrency a little bit as well. One of the very first times I used cryptocurrency, I'd been proselytizing about it and I saw it was a great idea as a libertarian, right? And my first cryptocurrency transaction actually was to Derek Bros. 
because he was writing articles for the Liberty Beat, this old news service that I did. And I was like, Derek, how can I pay you? Can I pay you with a card? Can you send me like a PayPal invoice or something? He's like, dude, I don't have a checking account. I'm, I'm an agorist. I don't have any of that stuff. So so I was going to HEB, the local grocery store, and I was sending him money via Western Union and paying like seven points or 12 points. I had to go physically, wait in line, not my thing. And it was terribly inconvenient. And one day I was like, huh, maybe I could just pay the guy with Bitcoin. I've been talking about Bitcoin all the time. So that was my first crypto transaction. It was Derek's first crypto transaction. But there's a lot of technologies. There's a lot of insights and strategies that you can utilize in your life to make it just a little bit easier to opt out of the matrix control grid. And our next guests, Mr. Sal Mayweather and Mike Swatek, are going to be talking about how they do just that. Sal is a podcast host. He does Sal the Agorist, amazing podcast, all about agorism. It's in the title even. And he also runs his counter-economic business, 3D Printer Go Burr. Burr. I think it's three R's, right? 3D Printer Go Burr. Correct. And you know, we have Mike Swatek, who has started the Agorist Market, agorist.market, which is a great place where people can come together to find goods and services, to offer goods and services, and everybody does it in a counter-economic kind of way. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us tonight at The Greater Reset. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So maybe we'll just start with a, a base question. Uh, we'll go with you first, Sal. If you could introduce yourself and then share how you got into agorism and why it resonates for you. Yeah, I'm Sal Mayweather. Uh, you guys might know me as Sal the Agorist. Uh, I, I'm on all your various social media platforms. Um, I was really always sort of like a small government guy, kind of like a constitutionalist. And then Ron Paul turned me into a uh, radical libertarian. And from there, I sort of went down this rabbit hole. Next thing I know, I was watching Walter Block videos and reading Rothbard, and it was all over. Finally, I found Konkin, and I realized this was sort of like the completion of the circle. Everything sort of came together, and he sort of made uh, he sort of made anarcho-capitalism seem more consistent. Uh, and that was for me the the true selling point was the consistency of agorism and counter-economics. Right on. Okay, so, uh, Mike, what about you? How did you learn about agorism? Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, my background, I'm a retired engineer, mechanical engineer. I uh, have bought a chunk of forest land about seven years ago and started building a homestead out here in the woods. Uh, agorism, I guess Konkin was probably where I happened to cross the word first. I stumbled across him reading various things in my journey of learning. I don't watch TV. I just research stuff and uh, happened across him and agorism. And it is fascinating. I've been doing a few things in agorism for a long time, going back to when I was a teenager even. But in the last seven years, I've really kicked it into high gear. And in the last few years, I've really accelerated my move into the Agora. Awesome. Yeah. And you, you guys are both doing really Really good work. So the the Great Reset aims to reshape the concept of capitalism away from self-interest, profit, 
profit towards this stakeholder capitalism where they want to make like sustainability the highest ethos and everything drives to benefit everyone in a community, which sounds nice and peachy, but really at the end of the day, it's all about it's all about control. And there's some other ways that financial systems can work. So uh, Sal, can you talk about the role that entrepreneurship plays in agorism and why that's important for people's self-freedom? Yeah, of course. So I, I define agorism vis-a-vis entrepreneurship. Essentially, agorism really is just uh, a unique form of entrepreneurship that seeks not only profits, but also disruption or disintermediation. You can't really separate agorism from entrepreneurship. Um, you know, it's one thing to grow your own food, but it's another to grow food for the whole community. And that, to me, that's that's really the key aspect of it. You know, uh, Vertical counter-economics is all about the creation of local production facilities that bypass state regulations. So I always give the example of like blockchain miners or 3D printers or something like that. But really, when you combine that with horizontal counter-economics or just peer-to-peer voluntary trade, that's that's really the true strength of counter-economics. And a lot of this I get from uh, Per Byland, who's an economist at Oklahoma State University, who wrote an article for LouRockwell.com way back in like 2006 called A Strategy for Pushing Back. And I really recommend everybody check that out. But he references both Carl Hess's book, Community Technology, and also Sam uh, Konkin's book, New Libertarian Manifesto. So I would say build these uh, local production facilities, but then also engage in peer-to-peer trade because that's how we're going to get them. That's that's the model that Satoshi Nakamoto used with Bitcoin. That's the model, the, the model that uh, Cody Wilson used, right? Create the, the 3D printed gun, but also distribute it to... Um, you know, unarmed people and gun-free zones. So that, that that's really the true strength of counter-economics, in my opinion. Right on. Yeah, and the time is ripe. We we see with the growth of this COVID tyranny, the prospect of being shut out of certain financial transactions, shut out of the grocery store, shut out, out of employment if you don't have your COVID immunity passport or if you haven't taken the vaccine. And so it's kind of like people are being faced with some pretty tough choices. Either they become agorists and they grow this counter-economic network and participate in it, or maybe they don't eat or they can't work. So the time is ripe. And and Mike, I think you have really created a wonderful tool for people that want to get tapped into the Agora, to the counter-economy. I'm going to be sharing the screen to just kind of poke around agorist.market, but maybe you could describe what it's all about and, and what inspired you to create this tool. Okay. I was looking for a place to promote my own business, my own agorist business. And I found that there weren't any other websites or anything out there that really filled that need that were functional. There were a few that had attempted to uh, provide that, but they just weren't working at the time. And I've been doing websites since, gosh, 1992 and said, well, okay, I can do that. So I started up agorist.market. The purpose of agorist.market is simply to connect counter-economy buyers with sellers. That's it. We're not involved in any of the transactions. We just want to create a marketplace where if you need something, you just go into the categories tab there on the website, look for the category of what it is you'd like to find, service, item, whatever. Uh, Go there, see the listings. There's a lot of listings. Uh, We've got over 150 business listings now. more recently, there were people wanting to buy and sell things that didn't really have a ongoing business. It was just kind of a temporary thing, like maybe they had a 
house they wanted to rent out or something. So we started a thing called Shop Agrist. And that is a page on Telegram that's intended to look something like Craigslist, but for agorists. And so what we're trying to do there is just uh, if you've got a job opening or some thing you'd like to sell or buy, but it's just a one-time thing, not a permanent thing, that's where you can list it. Now, both John and I also, we announce sales there for our products, and we both already have listings over on agorist.market. Now, one of the newer additions to agorist.market is a thing called Freedom Posts, and that's over on the far right side of the menu. And I've been creating some papers and posting them there. And the one at the top was right at the end of last year. I felt like, well, let's write something to help people and inspire people to get deeper into the Agora. And there are so many things you can do in your everyday life that you don't even think about simple stuff. And that was the intent of that paper is here's all the things you can do. Just start chipping away at it. It, it doesn't have to cost you anything. It doesn't have to be difficult. It's just doing it more. And that's the thing that matters. Excellent. Excellent. I think somebody's getting a little ding there. So I'm going to mute you guys while the other one's talking and, um, Hopefully it's not on my side, but, you know, a lot of folks are concerned about cryptocurrency in the space uh, in this space of people pushing back against the Great Reset, because admittedly so I've been a crypto guy for since 2012, 2013. But the blockchain technology is most definitely being utilized by these social engineers and these oligarchs here in Austin, Texas. They have a program where they want to give every homeless person a blockchain ID. And it's this impact investing tax exempt foundation phenomenon. And at the same time, I try to speak to these folks that are like that think all blockchain is bad, right? And all crypto technology is bad. But I like to point out that when the powers that be, when the Great Reset, when the United Nations, when the, your federal, local and state governments try to shut you out of financial transactions, there's not really much of a better technology outside of barter. Um, that will enable you to continue to be in commerce. So, Sal, why don't you talk to us about the role that cryptocurrency has played in the counter economy? Well, you think you just hit the nail on the head, right? It's all about creating, uh, you know, the whole purpose of Bitcoin, the way Satoshi uh, defined it was just as a peer-to-peer -peer cash that doesn't really need, uh, you're able to create secure transactions without the need for third party intermediaries. And that's really huge, especially in terms of counter economics. Um, Ross Ulbricht really put that on display in the Silk Road. He really showed us, you know, what the value of having a currency like that is. But I, I do think you're right that there is a lot of danger in the state having this technology. And, you know, the thing with technology is that it goes both ways. So like everything that the state has, we in the in the counter economy, we also have access to that technology as well. And we're going to use it against them just as they use it against us. So in terms of like cryptocurrency, one of the things that I'm concerned about is like the rollout of this uh, digital dollar. I think what they're going to use it to sort of pinpoint our transactions. They're going to, in other words, say, OK, guys, here's two thousand dollar stimulus for everybody. But you can only use it at uh you know, to go to the movies or to go to some retail store, you can't use it to buy a gun. You can't use it to buy Bitcoin or gold or silver. And it's in this way that they're going to try to control inflation. So I think it's a very real threat. But I do think that, uh, you know, if we're able to use cryptocurrencies as originally intended as a peer-to-peer -peer cash, and I think, I think we'll, in, in the long run, uh, we'll outcompete them. 
Right on. Yeah, and I think one of the big one of the big differentiators is the centralized blockchains and the centralized cryptocurrencies, just like a Federal Reserve, uh, what do they call them? Central bank digital currencies, right? Uh, but it's the decentralization that truly isn't controlled. It is, it's like a non-entity that no one owns, but anyone that participates can own at the same time, right? Now, I will say, caution to folks that are new to crypto, the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the most popular blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain is completely transparent. And if someone ties your address to your identity, then they can see all your transactions. But there's a lot of other crypto blockchains out there that are really actually designed for agorism and counter economics. Monero is one of them and R is another one, also known as Pirate Chain. So, uh, Mike, maybe you can talk to us about um, R and Pirate Chain and some of these other cryptos. Okay. Yeah. R is kind of the new kid on the block as far as privacy cryptos go. The uh, crypto is similar to Zcash uh, using the ZK Snarks method of uh, establishing privacy in your transactions. The difference is that Zcash didn't make it mandatory. You had to flip a switch to say, I want to make this transaction private. And very few people did that. And because so much of the Zcash blockchain has not been made private in the transactions, it essentially opens up the entire blockchain to uh, possibly being able to figure out what all your transactions have been and how much your balances are. R took a different approach and said, no, we're going to make privacy mandatory. It's just the way it is. And what that does is it, it causes the uh, anonymity set of your transactions to be just really high. And, and the way it works, it's really amazing technology because it basically tells you, yes, this thing exists or yes, this thing had happened, but it doesn't tell you anything about it. So uh, for, for an R transaction, it's as if a dollar was in my pocket or a silver coin, whatever, and then all of a sudden it appeared in your pocket. But none of us or anybody else saw it go from here to there. And it's just, it's just crazy. I don't fully understand all of how they have accomplished this, but it goes beyond Monero in its privacy capabilities. And there's also a messaging capability in the memo field of a transaction. And transaction fees are ridiculously low. So you can send a, a encrypted private message uh, and also another thing, if somebody gets hold of your wallet address and looks, they can't see anything. There's nothing there. It's like you're a ghost. There's nothing about your wallet amount. There's nothing about transactions you've had. Uh, even if you go look at a specific transaction, let's say you have the transaction identifier, there's nothing there about who it's from or who it went to or how much it was. So that's how private it is. It's it's just really great. And I think it's the future for privacy cryptos. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, go ahead, Sal. Go right ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm totally with Mike on that. I love privacy coins. I'm a big fan of Monero and all that. Um, what I, I, I've always preferred Bitcoin Cash. And let me just break down real quick why. Because... I think the biggest enemy that we face as agorists is the Federal Reserve. Um, if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve, they wouldn't be able to afford the welfare or the warfare state. They wouldn't be able to afford 
the medical industrial complex or the, the prison industrial complex or the surveillance state or any of this nonsense if they didn't have the power to inflate the currency. So we need to provide a better medium, medium of exchange. Um, and I, I, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the arguments that these privacy coin advocates make. But I think the one, the one uh, hurdle that they have is, is that they all lack retail adoption. Whereas uh, Bitcoin Cash has both, it's, 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 all, it's simultaneously an efficient medium of exchange and it has a, a strong retail adoption. I think it's the only coin, the only blockchain that can say that right now. But I'm a big fan of all of these privacy coins. And I agree with your original point, John, too. Um, fuck your permission, your, your, your permission blockchain. There, there's no need for it in, in Agorism or, or the counter economy. Right on. Well, tell us how you really feel. No. So, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, the cool thing about Bitcoin Cash is even though the blockchain is transparent, there's technology called coin mixing software, which Cody Wilson was referenced earlier. He was going to create this dark wallet at one point, and he literally called it money laundering, laundering software. So, you know, we're not we don't want to encourage anything unethical. But if people are going to engage in activities that aren't legal, then that should be their prerogative so long as they're not harming anyone. And Bitcoin Cash has some technology that allows you to mix up all the transactions and hide them up. One more note on cryptocurrency. A lot of folks, we're going to talk about this a lot on Thursday, the technology day, but there is a crowd that is just totally against cryptocurrency wholeheartedly. And many of these same people have their content and their information censored on the internet by centralized services. Well, on Thursday, we're going to hear from the creator of Library. It's just one of many decentralized technologies that allows people to share information, share videos, share content that is censorless, right? We call it uh, immutable, where you can't take it off the blockchain. It's just there forever. So it's a very, very beautiful thing. All right, we have about 10 minutes for this panel, and I want to spend the rest of the time talking about practical steps. This is all about solutions. It's an activation, solutions that people can take in their own lives. So, Mike, could you share, based on your experience with your own business, with all of the folks that you have congregated with uh, at agris.market, what are some first steps that people can take to make that leap, maybe from employment or the white above-board economy to agorism and entrepreneurship some first steps okay first it has to start with what you enjoy what do you enjoy that you'd like to do that you think you can make some money at figure out how to to turn that into a sideline uh start earning get a website uh figure it out you're not going to be able to jump in all at once and just okay one day i'm in the corporate world and the next day i'm an agorist it's a transition instead, but the, you have to start the transition and then pay attention to the feedback. Pay a lot of attention to the feedback you get from people because every time you get feedback, it's an opportunity to become better. Uh, don't take it as criticism. There's a tendency to do that. Uh, look at it as an opportunity to get better. Then you need to just get out there. Like, like for me, just getting out there. That was kind of hard. I'm an engineer. I'm a techie guy. I just, you know, that was, but I've, I made myself do it. I go to markets and sell my stuff on the side of the road and, uh, you know, just whatever. And I've learned to really enjoy doing that because I'm getting to talk with people about what it is I enjoy. And that makes it easy. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, agorism, the, the open market, the just people going and trading amongst one another, that is just a timeless 
piece of human civilization. It's always been there. And unfortunately, with the expanding technology, it's becoming more and more controlled, right? But we see alternative economies and alternative technologies that are making it easier simultaneously. But at the end, it takes the individual making those steps and actually taking action. So Sal, let's bring you up. What are some first steps that you would encourage someone to consider if they were trying to make the leap into the counter economy or entrepreneurship? Well, you know, I always I have a, a pretty standard spiel I give everyone because I, you know I don't want to put um, I don't want people to wind up in in jail or in hot water. So I think three simple ways people can get started in counter economics is just grow your own food, um, become your own bank, and to get a three D printer. So when it comes to growing your own food. Um, I believe, like I said, in creating local production facilities, but then take that food, take that production to uh, your local farmer's market and try to trade it for cryptocurrencies or, or gold or silver. Uh, some pretty good resources on this are guys like Curtis Stone or Jack Spierko. Um, when it comes to when it comes to comes down to becoming your own bank, um, it's going to be different for everyone. The, the, the method that I use is uh, cryptocurrency for exchange purposes and uh, precious metals for savings. And then uh, get a 3D printer. You can get it from me or get it from anyone as long as you get one. That's what's important because really uh, you're, you're really t- uh, disintermediating the entire manufacturing industry by having a 3D printer. And, and when they come knocking on your door for those buybacks, because that day is coming, right? The, the sort of, I think they called it a voluntary mandatory buyback program, whatever that is. <laughs> but when that, when, when that day comes, don't fight, right? Give them your guns, right? Hand them over. Because by the time they get done sweeping your neighborhood, if you have a good 3D printer, you can have enough guns left to arm the entire county. So, um, you know, grow your own food, become your own bank, and get a 3D printer. One-fourth one I'll throw in there for good measure is to become an entrepreneur, develop a side hustle. Um, and do your best to uh, minimize your tax burden and accept alternative currencies for whatever good or service you're, you're, you're producing. Yeah. Yeah. Derek had a nice passionate plea and, and statement about the income tax and says he hadn't paid it in 10 years. So kudos to him. And it really is about trying to line up consistently with your actions and your principles. And, it, you know, sometimes it's easier said than done. When it comes to the Freedom Cell Network, we really emphasize the importance of having a strong community, strength in numbers. Mike, can you share the importance of community when it comes to agorism and opting out of the matrix? Uh, gosh, you just can't overstate it. You know, to know that you're not alone out there, that you have a lot of other people who are of the same mindset. You know, I'm involved in several freedom cells now. We have uh, the MidFest, uh, midfest.info is the website for the MidFest uh, Liberty Festival here in the Western Ozarks twice a year. And we have an Agora there. And uh, uh, so they're just all these opportunities to mix with other people, kindred spirits. And that's so important because it energizes you. It makes you feel more alive in the Agora instead of just out there all by yourself doing these things that you can do. There's strength in community and numbers. And that's why we're trying to get this freedom community of Valiant going that we're working on so hard right now is to get a bunch of kindred spirits living in the same area together uh, on their own lots and everything, but together uh, so that we can support each other and have our own Agora and, you know, all the things that community is about. Right on, right on. Yeah. What do you got, Sal, when it comes to community? 
Well, you know, community isn't is only possible in counter economics. It's not possible through the state, right? You can't force people to be part of a community. A community only happens through voluntary peer-to-peer -peer trade or through horizontal counter economics, right? Um, like I said, you can't force people together. So um, a really good resource on this, I think, again, is that book by Carl Hess, Community Technology. He really goes over how... Uh, by creating, uh, he creates this whole aquaponics system to feed his whole little neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And it sort of brings the entire area together and he ends up being able to produce enough food for everybody. And it really, like I said, brings the whole community together. And I think, uh, you know, we're gonna hear more about that later on in the Great Reset, but community is, is you know, absolutely essential to uh, horizontal counter economics and peer-to-peer -peer trade. Right on. You mentioned Jack Spierko earlier. Um, he's going to be speaking um, Wednesday, I believe, on our Nature Day. He's way into agorism. He's got a huge platform, the Survival Podcast. He's going to be talking to us about aquaponics. Um, what are some areas that you guys would say? We've got about five minutes, and then we're going to bring up Derek to introduce our next guest. So um, we'll try to just do a couple more quick ones. But what are maybe a couple areas that you would focus on when it comes to the goods and services that we all use and rely on, right? There's a lot of essentials, and then there's some wants, right? There's some needs and some wants. But what are some areas of everyday life, of everyday commerce that you would recommend starting to replace the grocery store, replace the mall, replace Amazon and go to the community, go to the Agora. Sal, what do you got on that? Well, I'm going to, I'll throw a little one. I'll throw one out there. That's sort of people maybe aren't there. They're not expecting. Um, I'm really excited about the coming wave of tokenization. I think that in the next five to 10 years, everything will be tokenized. But what I'm really excited about is the tokenization of securities and assets, because I think when people stop, uh, you know, if you had a business, rather than taking your business public and trading those shares on an exchange, um, if you could tokenize your business on a blockchain and then trade those tokens on a decentralized exchange in a permissionless fashion, I think that's a very powerful tool that uh, is going to end up making an end run around both FINRA and the SEC. And then you're going to have a situation on your hands where, you know, people like us are going to be able to invest in the little corner store in Kenya or maybe the the you know, people living in sub-Saharan Africa can now own a piece of Apple or, or Google or Facebook or something like that. And I'm really excited about that. I think that it's going to unleash a, a wave of, of innovation like we've never seen before. I think FINRA and the SEC are, are doing a lot of damage. They're really holding us back. So I'm really excited about um, the tokenization of securities and assets. Right on. All right. What do you think, Mike? What are some areas that you think people could start with to replace the state centralized markets with agorism? Well, shop local and shop with small businesses. That's huge. Use cash. Don't use credit cards or barter. You know, I barter the stuff yeah. I grow in my garden for what people grow in their gardens that I don't grow. Uh, I got bees. I got honey. Uh, I trade my products. I traded some of my products today for silver. So, you know, learn to barter, learn to, you know, Get out there and find all these little businesses and get to know those people. Help them. Show them how to use crypto. Get them interested in trading for silver. Uh, uh, turn them into more of an agorist than they already are. Uh, most people in small businesses already are agorists to a certain extent. But, you know, yeah. help, them, mm -hmm. help them dive deeper. Right on. Okay, guys, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I think y'all have shared a lot of really good info and insights um, to what agorism is all about. So thank you so much, Mike. And thank you so much, Sal. Again, you, um, 
Mike's website for his colloidal silver products, his cosmetics is ppmsilvercosmetics.com. That's ppmsilvercosmetics.com. And he also founded, along with some other agorists, agorist.market, where you can go and find goods and services, or you can list your goods and services that you have to offer. And of course, Sal does 3D printer go brrr. That's B with three R's. You can buy 3D printers with cryptocurrency there. And his website is Sal the Agorist. He has a lot of great things to say, and he does his own podcast where he rants and raves about a lot of the stuff he shared shared today. Okay, we are going to be playing a short clip, and then we'll hear from Derek Rose, who's going to introduce our next speaker. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to The Greater Reset. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to The Greater Reset. Is that? Okay, cool. Thank you guys for being here. Give it up one more time for Mike Swaytek and Sal Mayler. Okay, this mic just stopped working. I don't know if they can hear me. We, we can hear you here on the stream, Derek. If you can hear me, we can we can hear it. You just need to be loud. All right, apologies for this mic turning off right now. We're going to bring on Charles Eisenstein now. Go ahead and see him over here. Okay, there we go. All right. Thank you guys again for being here. We're going to bring on Charles Eisenstein. I just wanted to say that, you know, we're, we're exploring a lot of different concepts. We're exploring a lot of economic concepts today. We've heard some people mention cryptocurrency, barter. We've talked about the counter economy. And just for those who haven't quite got it, what we're talking about, the counter economy is basically the economy that exists, the true economy outside of the corporations and the state's hands. It's when an individual exchanges value together face to face with no third party. And we all do that all the time. And essentially what we're saying is that there's value, there's strength by removing our, our money, our time, our energy from the mainstream economy and building this counter alternative, whatever you want to call it, this new economy. But one idea that we haven't explored yet that Charles Eisenstein has is, is explored is what he's called in the past sacred economics. He's talked about the gift economy, and he can elaborate on these concepts in a really beautiful way. So I really hope everybody here who's in, in our, our watch party and everybody watching at home will give their full attention to Charles Eisenstein. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you, Derek. Um, Hopefully everybody can hear me and I'm not just going to be motoring on. So I'll assume that's the case. Um, yeah, I was quite interested to hear the last uh, panel um, talking about the counter economy, uh, the idea that we can exchange with each other outside of the conventional economy, the corporate economy. And I would like maybe to start by expanding the idea of the counter economy a little farther uh, because to, to extend beyond exchanging with each other, because there's a whole realm of economic activity that is not recognized as such, which is the realm of gift. And I see this operating even in my neighborhood where, yeah, like I grow stuff in my garden. We have some chickens. Um, you know, it was actually a little diversion here. It's funny listening to these guys, you know, they're talking about guns and stuff and you're like, wow, these are some right-wingers, but then they're also talking about this hippie stuff, you know, aquaponics and organic this and organic that and raise your own. And um, really interesting here how defectors from the um, uh, corporate 
dominated world, which would be considered the left, are kind of merging with defectors from the state dominated world, uh, which would be considered the right. And anyway, and and but I'll and I'll say though that the unifying thing here is uh, community. This is what people right and left everywhere I've, well, I don't go very many places now, but that's, that's what people say is missing from their lives. Well, what is community actually? Community is when you can look around you at each other and feel that I need you and you need me. It's not, this is not about individual freedom so much as relationship having relationships that are not mediated by global markets, by big tech, by the government, but that are based in, in place, that include relationships with other people and beings who are not people, relationships to soil, to water, to, to, the, to the landscape. Like that's what it's, that is what it is to be at home. That's what it is to belong. And when we lack that experience, we never can feel secure. And so we crave more and more money, more and more power, uh, more and more dominance. But it's because we're not in community. Well, community, that feeling of I need you and you need me, we need each other, that is inimical to the kind of money economy that we've been in, in which you don't need anybody because you can pay for it. I don't need my neighbors because I can order on Amazon. And we've gone down this track of more and more, it seems like more and more independence from each other, but actually it's more and more dependence, dependence on distant institutions. Until now in the COVID era, that dependency has gotten almost complete for many, many people. We're dependent on, on even shopping. Uh, that's dependent on on technology. You can't even just go somewhere and buy something anymore. Um, everybody listening to this has experienced probably the migration of more and more dimensions of life onto the screen. Um, and how can you really have community then? So as we exit the COVID era, we ask ourselves, well, okay, it's not a given that we're going to exit the COVID era, but that's a whole other topic. But let's just say, as we exit the COVID era, we ask, what do we want to reclaim from pre-COVID and from pre-pre-COVID, from, from previous generations? And what maybe do we, have we given up that maybe we don't really need anymore? Like, I don't know vacuous uh, tourism and things like that. But if we want to reclaim community, then we can take this opportunity of what we're calling the greater reset, the great reset, um, and see how that applies to the economic realm. Now, the, the, the last panel talked about what you can do outside of the mainstream economy, but I, I think it's also important as a collective to also talk about, well, what about the dominant economy? Um, it's not just going to 
go away by itself. I mean, we could foresee um, chaotic collapse, but I don't want to put my energy there. Uh, I don't want to hope for that because the dislocation, the suffering that results from total economic collapse is just unimaginable. And yeah, maybe there's something beautiful on the other side, but <clears throat> can't we do it in a gentler way? You know, we saw what collapse, even this wasn't even a total collapse, but a pretty big collapse in the former Soviet Union in the 90s, you know, and life expectancy plummeted by 10 years. I mean, it was it was really bad. Um, so I would like to talk about how we can transition the dominant economy so that it moves in the direction of some of the ideals that have come up already in this program. Uh, so that, for example, the economy um, and the money system no longer is the enemy of community, no longer is the enemy of nature. How can we change it? Because really, the money system, money itself, is simply an agreement. It's a story. It's the, the, the meaning that we give to symbols. Most of it isn't even physical now. I mean, cash is like 3% or something like that or less of money now. Um, and, and, you know, in a way, this is true even if we use gold and silver as currency or, or commodities or representations of commodities. Like even gold and silver, it's not actually that useful outside of an agreement that it is valuable. I mean, you can make jewelry out of it and stuff, but I mean, come on, two-thirds of all the gold ever mined in history, two-thirds of it is sitting in vaults right now. If it were useful, it wouldn't be sitting in vaults. Anyway, I don't need to argue that point too much, but just to say that money is a story, it's an agreement, and we can make a new story. Before COVID, we were told, well, we just don't have the money to have universal health care, free higher education, um, guaranteed basic income. I mean, come on, we couldn't afford any of that. But now, all of a sudden, $3 trillion of stimulus becomes available. Where does that money come from? There's an unlimited amount of money when we understand that it is an agreement. By the same token, the national debt is an agreement. Everyone's personal debt is an agreement. So I just want to be maybe, I, I don't have a huge amount of time to lay out a whole picture, but I want to, um, you know, first uh, affirm the value of local community. Like this is, it's not just, you can't measure it in conventional economics. The the value, the benefit you get from knowing the people around you, from, from um, having full relationships, to know the, the, the names and the stories of your neighbors, uh, to feel needed, to eat food grown by somebody you know, um, to, to be able to feel free to enact values that don't make sense in terms of quantities of dollars and cents, but that make sense to the heart. 
when we see how beautiful the results are of say growing food in a most in the most ecological and beautiful way and to see soil recover and to see birds come back and to see the water table rise and maybe you don't get economically rewarded for that but if we are able to shrink the so this isn't only about transitioning or changing the the global economy it's also about shrinking its domain and reclaiming some of life from money I mean, this is even in my lifetime, so much of life has migrated into the money realm. When I was a kid, people rarely paid for childcare, for example. Neighbors watched the kids. People rarely paid for cooking. You know, you bought raw ingredients. People didn't pay for entertainment as much. People still got together and had fun themselves. Uh, they were still, you know, pick up baseball games and things like that. Um, in my father's time, he said the whole neighborhood would get together and play guitars and sing folk songs in suburbia in the 1940s. So all of these functions have been monetized. And the reason there's, see, one reason that they've been, it's not that we're better off when we pay for other people to sing our songs or play our sports or take care of our children. It's that it grows the economy for that to happen. And we have a money system that relentlessly pushes for economic growth that requires it, that compels it. And that economic system and that story of money that compels it is called debt. Well, it's called usury. It's called, it's a system that is in which money is created as interest bearing debt. So I've gone on a circuitous route to say that any true reset is going to have to address debt. And I, by address, I mean, to some extent, cancel. Any system that keeps all of the debts on the books is not actually a reset. And we have historical precedent for what is possible. Going back to ancient Greece, Solon, the, the great wise leader of of um, pre-classical Athens. Um, he took power at a time when, when um, the concentration of wealth was increasing, where people were losing their land and even their own freedom. Back in those days, if you couldn't pay your debts, you became a slave. And, and the society was collapsing because of that. And people were getting violent. People were, you know, they were getting their guns, you know, so to speak. Um, and, and social unrest was brewing, and he declared a cancellation of the debts, restored the lands of those who had lost them to their creditors. Uh, and it was, it's, you know, it's called, I can't remember the Greek term for it, but, but in English, we call that a jubilee. And, and this is the, the, the idea comes from a recognition that it's not right to hold a debt over someone's head forever. And furthermore, that a lot of the debt that is in place today was um, is is illegitimate. If in in like for for the majority now of Americans, you have to borrow just to live, to live the same uh, standard of living as your parents or grandparents did as a middle class person. A lot of people are going into debt, student loan debt, medical debt, credit card debt. And it's not that you're profligate. Uh, I mean, people are working harder now 
two incomes instead of one to have the same lifestyle as you know a, a middle class family in the 1950s or 60s so so this so there's a brewing resentment that has taken the form of all kinds of populist movements. I mean, to some extent, and I'm not going to say the whole thing, but to some extent, this is behind the Trump phenomenon. It's a profound disaffection with the establishment and its story of, of progress. And if you're a good citizen and you work hard and you, you get good grades and you go to a good college, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to be okay. You're going to do well. You're going to be better off than your parents. People are not experiencing that. So there's this profound disaffection, um, and and this realization, this this understanding that you know what, maybe this whole system that has put me into such debt is illegitimate, and we can apply it on a global level too. Um, the the so-called third world. Um, Nations all over Africa, South America, South Asia, laboring under enormous debt burdens, which basically means all of their wealth gets siphoned off into interest payments to global capital. So they basically sell their resources, and in return, they get a piece of paper that says you're up to date on your debt payments. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So there's so there's there's an economic and a moral logic to debt cancellation, to jubilee on some level. Now, I'm not saying totally abolish all debts instantaneously because we're all interconnected and one person's debt is another person's savings account. I mean, a savings account is a debt owed you by the bank, really. So this is not um, something for, for abrupt heroic measures, but it's the understanding beneath it that we are in a debt trap right now that is siphoning the wealth from the majority into the hands of a very few. In the time of COVID, uh, I was just looking at some statistics. The, the, the world's billionaires have gotten $5 trillion, $4 trillion richer. America's 1% has gotten about $5 trillion richer in the last nine months. Well, where's that money coming from? Is that because the global economy is growing so fast that the billionaire's share is making them richer? No, the global economy shrunk this year, but the share of the billionaires is bigger. That means even less for everybody else. And probably a lot of you are feeling that in a very literal way. So yeah, so I just wanna put this out there um, as, as a pillar of any genuine reset. If there's gonna be bailouts let them be debtors' bailouts, not creditors' bailouts like last time. Not bailing out AIG and whatever, Wells Fargo, you know, Bank of America, General Motors. Like, what about bailing out the small businesses and the mortgage hold, the people who owe mortgages and credit cards, what student loans and medical debt? What about bailing them out? This is, I think, if there's any unifying issue right now. Um, for a for true populism, um, it's got to be debt, and it's also perhaps the greatest vulnerability of the establishment. If we went on a debt strike, and I don't know if the time for that is now, but once the public repudiates debt, it becomes nothing but symbols in a database. It has power only because of our agreements. And I think that our agreements are wearing thin. 
so that's just one. Yeah, that's one. Another one I wanted to, to mention was was um, you know what the previous gentlemen were talking about the um, the the value of community and the understanding that that there's more to life than what can be monetized, and that when we try to monetize too much of life and account for everything, then we lose all of the things we can't account for. So we have this, and this is what's happened in a growth-dependent economy. When the money system is based on interest-bearing debt, that's how money's created in our system. A bank lends money into existence, or, or the Federal Reserve purchases government securities, uh, creating new money thereby. Every time that happens, new debt is created too. And because it's normally at interest, there's more debt than money, always, which means we're always in competition, which means to pay back that debt, either you, either you have a lot of bankruptcies because there's more debt than money. You can't pay it all back mathematically. Or when the debts come due, even more money needs to be created to pay those debts. But that creates even more debt. And then more money needs to be created and more and more. And the money is created through lending um, to um, credit-worthy borrowers, i.e. those who can pay it back, i.e. those who are going to make even more money than you've lent them, i.e. those that are creating new goods and services. So... Anyway, that's it takes it takes a bit longer to really flesh that out, but just to say there's a reason why every government in the world wants to grow the economy. It's a necessity. Otherwise, the system stops working. But why do is what the world needs right now really more and more and more? No. We don't even need more food. Yeah, there are hundreds of millions of people starving in the world. But there's also even more food, enough food to feed them all twice over that is wasted every year. Not to mention the land that's wasted uh, through like America's biggest irrigated crop, lawn grass, you know. Uh, and some of the some of these these grow your own guys. I mean, you you know that actually if you set your mind to it, and it doesn't even take that much work, you can be not only self-sufficient, but feed your whole neighborhood. Um, it happened back in World War II. Uh, in the UK, they were called victory gardens, I think. The US had them too. We managed to feed, you know, like something like close to half of all produce was grown in gardens. In Russia today, it's still like that. Um, some close to half of most of many food categories, uh, not grains, but but pretty much everything else is um, grown in dachas, you know, in, in small plots. So, so anyway, this, that's just one example of 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 that to to one example of a abundance that's already here. We don't need more and more and more. We could share more. Um, we could have more durable goods instead of more throwaway goods. We don't need planned obsolescence. We could have repairable goods. We could have economies that are that are based on um, repair and recycling and reuse. Like we don't have to. Well, in a way, we do have to consume more and more and more in order to keep the system going. Because, and hmm, how much time do I have left? Just checking here. Yeah, just a few minutes. I want to make sure 
comes to a good conclusion. This is a, a classic problem of capitalism, that advances in technology mean that fewer and fewer people are necessary to produce the same amount of stuff. So how is everybody going to make money and have a job? The only way is if we consume more and more and more. Or <laughs> the other option in a different kind of money system would be that we work less and less and less. And actually what that means is that we work less and less and less to produce quantities of things and therefore turn more and more of our human creativity and labor toward the meeting of qualitative needs, toward beauty and healing and life. That is what is possible with what I would like to see as a great reset, where we say, we're done growing. We've reached maturity as a species, physical mature, maturity. It's time to grow in another way. Just like when a teenager reaches 18, 19 years old, maybe, the growth is done. That doesn't mean he stops developing. There's so many other dimensions along which one can develop. But if you have that 18-year-old who's like, gosh, my kid stopped growing, I better give him some growth hormones. That's called economic stimulus. Give him some growth hor hormones, make sure he keeps growing. Like, that's crazy. It's time for the growth to stop. It's time for growth in energy use, in miles traveled, in, 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 in automobiles produced. I mean, in, in like, we don't need more anymore, but we're stuck in that because of the economic system. So let's reset that. and reclaim life and beauty from the money realm. Practically speaking, that means expanding the gift economy. That means finding a way to meet people's basic quantitative needs that they don't go away. Perhaps that is a universal basic income that of course has to be unconditional. Otherwise it becomes, you know, big brother rewarding you for being a compliant citizen and, you know, getting your shots and filling out your forms and whatever. Um, so it's got to be unconditional. Um, but, you know, there's, I'm not going to talk too much about universal basic income, um, just to say it's a, a two-edged sword. And, and if it happens without also relocalization and um, support for small business, I mean, <laughs> look what's happened in COVID. This is why the billionaires are getting richer and richer, because the, the corporations and the stock market are basically being propped up and small businesses are being left to sink or swim on their own. Or the, that's one reason anyway. Um, the central banks are, are, are inflating stock prices. I, I'm not going to go into all those details, um, but I just want to speak to a, a valid indignation that this is happening. It doesn't have to happen this way. It's not inevitable. And to change it depends on how willing we are to rethink everything. How willing we are to recognize that money and debt are nothing but an agreement that can be changed. Look how much we have changed in the time of COVID. That has been, those changes have been I would say reactionary. Um, 
some have more, um, you know, uh, nefarious <laughs> explanations for that. Uh, but I don't think I'll go there now, but uh, I, I will say simply that if we direct that change capacity consciously, then we could be living in a world so much more beautiful and healed and alive than the one where all the technology is here, the technology to rebuild soil, the technology to heal the water, the technology to heal, to heal trauma, um, collective and personal trauma. Uh, I just did a podcast with this woman, Fritzi Horseman, who does this, this work in prisons. Like people that society has written off, the amount of healing that's possible in these groups is just like it brings you to tears. What would happen if we turned our attention to that as a society instead of to maintaining 800 military bases, instead of to keeping this, this economic machine running um, to produce things that ultimately we don't even need. Like, do we need, I mean, there's a whole controversy about 5G. Do we really even need it? That question's not usually asked. Is it asked, well, you know, is it dangerous or not? But, but I mean, come on, is it really gonna improve our lives to be able to download your app in three seconds instead of 45 seconds to be able to stream video anywhere on the street? I mean, really? Do we need that? It, we've kind of drifted unconsciously into this. And what has caused this drift, the current that is drifting us to that, is the current of the conversion of the world into money. It's the engine of economic growth. It comes down on a deep level to the system of debt. So let's reset that thinking. Let's ask the questions that haven't been asked, like how much is enough? Why are we really here? What is our purpose? And to touch our willingness to turn toward those purposes because it's right in front of us. The technologies are all there. The abundance is all there. Yeah, so um, I think that's all I've got to say. Let me see here. Oh yeah, perfect timing. One minute left. So um, I guess, gosh, I just motored on for half an hour. Um, thank you all for indulging me with that. And uh, I guess I'll turn it back over to, to you, Derek, or I'm not sure what comes next. All right. Sorry. All right. Give it up for Charles Eisenstein, everyone, wherever you're watching from. That was wonderful. Thank you, Charles, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate that. Again, thank you, Charles Eisenstein. You can, of course, find out about all of our speakers on our website if you want to get plugged into who they are, what, where they're coming from. Uh, I hope that some of these people are new for you. And if, even if you know Charles or some of the other speakers work, be sure to support them and check them out. I wanted to comment on a couple of things before we bring on our last speaker, Mr. James Corbett, who I know many of you are familiar with. Uh, I just want to make it just even more clear. Some things came up when Charles was talking. Like, For one, the fact that, as he said, that everything going on with COVID and things that precede COVID and let's say particularly economic effects of lockdowns, 
that even are affecting people here in Mexico? I mean, how many people have seen folks come from a different country, come to Mexico, complain about COVID regulations to try to shut down local businesses? We've seen that happen. I think it's disgusting. It's disturbing. Um, but the point is that people are being affected, and many people, Mexico and elsewhere, do live day to day and are struggling. And so the effects of, e of lockdown on our economic situation around the world affect people left, right, center, whatever. And that's one thing that, as Charles was pointing out, I think it's affecting so many different people and bringing lots of people together that maybe previously hadn't worked together. So this is why we chose the speakers we did as part of the Greater Reset. We want to have a diverse amount of ideas expressed and, and topics brought up. So we hope you will explore all of them. And I also want to just share that for anybody watching this live or afterwards, I do recommend following our Telegram channel for the Greater Reset Activation, as well as for those who are here in Ziwa in Mexico to follow the Ziwa channel because that's where we're posting all the updates. And we asked a question earlier to the audience, how do you reset? Share a strategy for pushing back against the state in the comments. And it was interesting just to see the amount of comments and to hear from our friends in Europe saying they're staying up late. Thank you guys. They're up at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. right now watching us. And we appreciate that. But like I said earlier, we have brothers and sisters all around the world, and so many people are coming together. People are trying to you know, get their focus on and, and figure out how we can move forward. And one of those people who is coming from Japan right now and is up early for us to give this talk, originally from Canada. Many of you know his work, know his documentaries, his very important reports. And he's done a great job over the years of promoting freedom cells, promoting agorism, and a lot of the concepts that we've been promoting today. And today he's going to speak to us about alternative currency. So please, everybody, give a round of applause wherever you're at for Mr. James Corbett. Thank you very much, Derek. Thank you very much for that introduction. I hope I'm coming through loud and clear. Hey. All right. Uh, you'll let me know if I'm going to break up or anything, right? So uh, I'll, I'll check the chat for that. Uh, thanks so much for having me here today. Uh, this is such an important topic that we're discussing here tonight, as I know you all know. Um, but I, so because it is such a big topic, I want to try to limit it down to something manageable. So I think that on the Greater Reset website, what I'm talking about tonight was billed as something like the uh, the power of alternative currencies. I'm going to take a much more manageable and bite-sized uh, approach tonight. I'm going to talk specifically about solutions survival currency. And that's an important distinction that I'm going to make in a minute here. But first, I wanted to start today with a letter that I just uncovered that I think will be very interesting to you. So I'm going to read this letter to you. It's from New United Nations HQ, Consumer Enforcement Division. It's to Winston Smith, and it is dated the 17th of February, 2025. The subject of this letter is Revocation of Commercial Interaction License, and it reads, Dear Consumer, our Biometric Detection Division has confirmed that you participated in the protests at last month's coronation of Hillary Clinton as Supreme Leader of the United States for Life. Your case was reviewed by our enforcement personnel, and you were found guilty of unlawful dissent. As a result, all of your financial accounts have been closed, your carbon credit allowance has been frozen, and your consumer participation chip has been deactivated. You have been downgraded from consumer to laborer. As such, you may proceed to the nearest Federal Emergency Management Agency labor camp to receive your work assignment. You will be provided a space in the dormitory and three meal credits per day. All hail the new United Nations. Praise be to Secretary General Rothschild. 
ha, 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 yeah, ha, ha, funny. <laughs> of course, this isn't a real letter. This is something that I wrote back in 2016. It's just, uh, just Josh and you, ha, 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 new United Nations and some sort of a consumer and enforcement division that's going to be looking at your uh, protest activities and taking you off of the uh, the monetary grid as a result of them. Oh, what's crazy, stupid science fiction. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, no, this this isn't science fiction. Of course, this letter is completely fake, but this letter is very, very real. And I'm going to read this letter to you, which came out on September 4th of 2014 and was addressed to Speedy Cash of Savannah, Inc. by SunTrust who wrote, SunTrust continuously reviews its products, markets, and client relationships to ensure that we are able to provide the best possible client service while also meeting our corporate business objectives. There are circumstances where we will identify a specific account relationship that no longer meets these criteria. In the best interest of our clients and SunTrust, we will request that those accounts be closed. As a result of a recent account review, we regret to inform you that SunTrust is no longer able to provide some of the financial services you require. We respectfully request that you immediately begin closing all of your SunTrust deposit accounts, safe deposit boxes, and credit cards by October 6th of 2014. If you do not close these accounts by this date, we will need to close them for you and either hold the proceeds until we hear from you or mail you a check for any collected balance, blah, 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 etc., etc. Yes, this is an actual letter that was really sent out from SunTrust Bank to one of their clients... Speedy Cash of Savannah, Inc. in 2014 to close their account. But why, you say? Well, actually, that's a funny story. And by funny, I mean horrifying. Namely, the Department of Justice's Operation Choke Point. If you are unfamiliar with Operation Choke Point, I highly suggest you become familiar with that little operation that was perpetrated by the DOJ, under Obama, it started uh, as an idea in 2011. It was uh, first revealed to the public in 2013, and it was shut down for good in August of 2017. So nothing to worry about, guys. It's just this completely illegal, totally unconstitutional scheme whereby the DOJ used the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is an independent agency of the U.S. government, guys. Don't worry about it. It's totally independent. It's just that the DOJ used the FDIC and its supervisory role over banks like SunTrust and many, many, many others, all of the banks that participate in the FDIC uh, uh, scheme to ensure your savings. Well, they have a supervisory role over those banks. So the DOJ leaned on the FDIC to lean on the banks to pressure them to close the accounts of businesses completely legal, law-abiding businesses that they didn't like. And an example of those kinds of high-risk activities that the DOJ wanted to uh, essentially outlaw from using banking services included those greasy and undesirable payday lenders, those kind of scammers and prostitutes and tobacco shops and Small pharma, not big pharma, they're okay, obviously, but you know, the small kind of pharmaceutical buy, buy cheaper drugs from Canada kind of mail order stuff, uh, online gambling, dating services, coin dealers, ammo dealers. Yes, again, completely 100% legal 
and law-abiding businesses had their bank accounts closed because the FDIC leaned on their bank to make sure that they closed those accounts. And it was just suggestion. It was just guidance. They were just holding their, their power over these banks as, oh, we, you know, we could come in and use our supervisory role to start making changes or, or we could put you guys in the naughty books unless you close these accounts. And they did. And this was a huge thing. And it took multiple lawsuits, threatened lawsuits, as well as a congressman who was actively fighting against it for there even to begin to be pushback on this. It wasn't until 2015 that the FDIC said, well, maybe we'll stop doing this. And then by 2017, supposedly they really did. But Operation Chokepoint, I did write an article about this that I'll direct you to. It's called Chokepoint, How the Government Will Control the Cashless Economy. Again, I wrote that article in 2016. And here we are five years later. How much further along the road towards that nightmare vision of a society where the government can come in and shut people off, not just from having a bank account, but from transacting at all in a cashless economy. A cashless economy will never get there. Well, fast forward to 2021, and we're already well along the road towards that, and it's only accelerating. So again, I would direct people to that uh, that article if they need more information on that. If you are watching this live, obviously I don't have this posted to my site yet, but when it gets posted to my site with the show notes at corbettreport.com slash survival currency, there will be links to all of the things I'm gonna talk about tonight. But I just wanted that as sort of the way to set the table for this conversation, because as funny as this kind of fake letter is, it's based on the real letters that have already gone out. And that's just the beginning of the nightmare that we are stumbling into. Now, having said that, what I am here to talk about tonight, obviously, is important. But we all know that, right? You're not here because you're just finding out about this or this is the first you've ever heard of it. Oh, I never knew that the government could control currencies like that. No, you know that there is a problem. So that's why you're here. So we're not going to dwell on that uh, for this, for the purposes of this talk tonight. What are we going to do? Well, that's a good question. So let me lay it out. What this presentation is not, this presentation is not another attempt to describe the problem. As I say, you probably already know about it, at least in general detail. If you want more specifics, I've talked about it for year after year after year for over for almost a decade and a half now. So I'm pretty sure you can get caught up to speed from my archives alone, let alone everything else in independent media space. Uh, this presentation is not an attempt to solve the money problem once and for all. Here is how to do it. This is capital M, capital R, monetary reform. This is how we will transform the entire nature of monetary reality. It is not an attempt to do that. And it is not an attempt to create a one singular solution that everyone must follow, blanket, everyone. This is for everyone. This is one size fits all. It is not an attempt to do that. What this presentation is, is an attempt to outline not even the necessity for, as I say, you already know, but the options for creating a survival currency, emphasis on survival currency to be differentiated from that idea of some sort of alternate monetary paradigm where we'll set it up and it'll all be this big system that will all function this way and everyone will participate because it'll be all golden. No, no, no. We're talking about survival currency. When and if you get 
cut off from the grid, when your bank accounts are closed and your UBI or your social credit payment or whatever it ends up being gets cut off in the coming years as part of the uh, a biosecurity state tied into the biometric ID state tied into the social credit score, etc. When that nightmare coalesces and you get cut off so that you are not able to buy and sell in the officially declared, decreed legal tender of the land, what are you going to do? That is when you need a survival currency, and it better already be in place by that time. So that's what we're going to do in this presentation. This is meant as a starting point for those who are willing to begin the experimentation that is going to be necessary to find out what will thrive and what will fall to the wayside as we create alternate alternative communities that will support other ways of transacting other than the filthy dollars or yen or pesos or euros or pounds that we think of as money. So um, as I say, that's the broad outline of what we're going to attempt to do today. And more specifically, I want to stress some general principles that I think are exceptionally important to keep in mind as we proceed with all of this. The first one is, do not put the cart before the horse. And in this case, the cart is the currency. The horse is community. And what I mean by this is that any system that you come up with, some elaborate scheme, some accounting measurement, and we use this and we transact this way with this kind of thing. All of those schemes are wonderful and amazing. And I'm so glad that you have such wonderful ideas. But without a community that is actually dedicated to bringing that scheme about, that is actually willing to participate in that scheme, you have nothing. You have ideas that aren't even worth the paper they're printed on. Uh, because you have to buy that paper that they're printed on in filthy dollars or whatever, not in this imaginary currency that you've imagined up out of whole cloths. So the horse is community. Put the horse before the cart and the horse will dra drag the, the cart. So the currency idea is great, but it comes after the community. That's why, as Derek noted in my introduction here, I have stressed and promoted the idea of freedom cells, which... Uh, I hope everyone watching this knows freedomcells.org is the place where you can go and start a freedom cell. Of course, as I'd like to stress, it doesn't have to be freedomcells.org. You don't have to do it through that organization. That's an idea, a way of connecting with other people. But if you want to connect in other ways, please do. The point is to create community. And I like the idea of starting in small groups, groups of eight or something manageable, and then connecting to other groups. I think that's a much more stable structure. Um, and probably a better way to start the idea of talking about and then implementing transaction and exchange networks that will facilitate actual productive economic activity when and if we arrive at Mad Max apocalyptic scenario and or the government coming down and cracking down on dissent to the point of taking you off the, the payment grid. So that's the number one general principle I want to stress. Do not put the cart before the horse. Community is the horse. The second general principle, the perfect is the enemy of the good. We are not going to create the perfect system all in one whole fell swoop. And it's, oh, here it is. And this is it. And this is this is it for all time. Uh, and if that is the, the standard by which you are measuring what you are doing, then you are not going to get anywhere. You'll probably never even try because you will never me uh, measure up to that in the real world. Certainly not at first. So do not 
uh, only hold the perfect as the standard by which we will measure everything against. Uh, another general principle to keep in mind, take advantage of existing systems. Do not reinvent the wheel here. We do not need to recreate and reimagine and start from scratch. Chances are there are already local community exchange networks that exist in your local area, whether that's a local exchange trading system and or some sort of community community currency or community dollars, or whether it's a time banking system, whether you have some sort of agorist network in your area, that would be heavenly, wouldn't it? But <clears throat> take what you have in your local area and work with it. Um, move it along. If you have a, a freedom cell that can infest a, uh, a an already existing community currency and maybe take it over <laughs> in some productive way that you can steer it more towards your ends. Hey, whatever you have to do, but don't necessarily start from scratch. That's going to be a lot harder than using something that already exists. If there is already an infrastructure in place where you live, that is probably the place you want to start trying to see how you can mold it and adapt it. And that's the next general principle. <clears throat> adapt all the ideas that are presented to you and anything that you can think of, adapt them to you in your particular context with the people that you're working with in the community that you're in and for the, for the purposes that you want to facilitate exchange. Now, uh, again, if you're starting with a small group of people, that's going to be a different thing altogether than if you have some sort of mass idea for an online community of millions of people around the globe or something along those lines. There is, And there's many things in between and different types of exchanges are going to happen in different contexts. So whatever it is, you have to adapt the ideas that you have for the context that you're operating in. <clears throat> Another general principle, it is not all or nothing. This is particularly evident in the monetary reform space, uh, where there is a lot of dogma that either you are 100% dedicated to this particular idea in this particular way, only this is money and nothing else, or... Uh, or I don't, I don't even want to transact with people at all. It is not all or nothing, especially when we get into survival currency. Sure, again, when we're talking about the theoretical system of the future where we're going to create some sort of system that the entire world will agree on, it'll be so easy. Yeah, okay, we'll worry about that then, okay? Then we can have the all or nothing dogma, my, my way or the highway kind of uh, approach. When you are in a survival situation where you are literally scrambling to provide food for your family, chances are you're probably not going to be so dogmatic. So let's start from, from that point of the survival currency. What can I do to facilitate exchange with people in my area who I know, who I want to exchange with, but we don't have access to these dollars, yens, pesos, whatever. So it is not all or nothing. Do not give into the dogma of that. And then the final general principle before we roll up our sleeves here, it is all hot air until you actually do something in the real world. It is just blather unless it is being done in the real world. And look, no one likes blather more than me. You know, good old James, he'll blather on for ages. But this is 2021. We do not have time for blather and for talking shops and for debating and going back and forth. I want to see real action in the real world. That is what we need right now, much more than yet more bloviating mouthpieces just flapping their gums. So in an attempt not to do that tonight, let's start. I want to dive 
directly into actual examples of existing things uh, that could serve as some form of survival currency for your community, however you define that and whatever that may be. And again, these are all examples that hopefully you can take ideas from, you can adapt, you can see if they exist in your area, you can build on, you can discard completely if you don't like them, etc. These are just ideas that I'm throwing out on the table. So let's go through some of them. And uh, the more specific, the better. Now, again, as I say, the community is the horse. You have to put the horse first. So it really does depend on what your community is and what you envision for what kind of exchange trading facilitation you want to do. That will very much determine what kind of currency ideas you're, you're willing to look at. Now, the ideal situation the absolute ideal would be some sort of community where you know everyone personally on a name, first name basis. You are friends. You you have the same goals. You want to accomplish the same things. You are working towards the same ends. You all want to support each other. There are enough of you to productively produce all of the things that you need in order to survive and thrive. And thus, you are perfectly committed to helping other people. If you see a, a friend in your community who needs something, you're perfectly willing and able to provide it for them and vice versa. Everyone's harmonious. Yay, Nirvana, yay. We can all go home because I, I really don't think we really even have to worry about money and currency in that situation. So everyone who is in that situation in their life right now, please put up their hand. Yeah, uh, yeah, precisely no one. Okay, well, oh well. Well, when you get there, I'm 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 pretty sure you, you won't need any of this survival currency nonsense. But for the rest of us living in the real world, where we do have relations with people that we are not 100% in community with, and or uh, are trying to, or or don't have, or maybe even have that community, but aren't able to provide enough to sustain ourselves and thrive uh, in that way, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and start getting specific examples of what people have done and are doing to facilitate exchange amongst each other. And I, again, I want to start with really specific examples. So I will immediately break that rule by going to sort of a couple of the general ideas that are out there that unfortunately, again, fall prey to this uh, dogmatic approach that I talked about earlier. I, I, you know, I'm in the conspiracy space. I deal with dogma and woo on all sorts of things every day that people have very strong opinions about. And yet I'm not sure there is any, any space that is more uh, driven through with that type of dogma and woo than the monetary reform space. And everyone has their angle and everyone is the Messiah who has the one answer that's going to solve all your problems. And every one of them is wrong. <laughs> every one of them is wrong. Uh, don't, don't fall into that trap, please. Um, but... Having said that, I know there are dogmatists who have certain dogmas. And so I'm here to say, okay, great. Form your community based on your dogma. That's great. If it facilitates exchange, that's awesome. That is literally all I want is people to exchange. So I know, for example, there will be the people in the crowd. The only thing that is money is gold and maybe silver or precious metals or some sort of hard commodity like that. Great. Okay. Yeah, sure. Again, find your community where you are producing everything you need and everyone that you know will trade with you directly in precious metals. And I guess you're all physically in the same geo, uh, geo, uh, geological or geographical location because, I mean, obviously you're not doing this internationally, right? So 
Anyway, okay, great. Again, as I say, set it up. So obviously I don't think I need to elaborate on the idea behind using precious metals as a form of exchange. Uh, it is a, it's a hard money. It's a commodity based money, um, which has its pros and cons. Um, and again, people will have come down on different sides of the dogmatic line on this. I, I don't care. I'm not dogmatic. I'm agnostic. If it works, use it. Uh, precious metals have worked historically because they are universally valued and universally recognized. Uh, they can be minted in ways that are standardized and recognized. And as long as no one's shaving the coins or putting uh, tungsten in the middle or, or any of that kind of trickery and nonsense, then, you know, you can be fairly sure, okay, well, this ounce of gold is worth about the same as it was a few thousand years ago in a different culture, so it is a good store of value, and it is also trustless. So the pros, it is universally recognized and universally valued to some extent, if only for intrinsic value, decorative value, industrial value, etc. Um, so it does have some intrinsic value. Um, the cons, it is a commodity money. So it does incentivize hoarding. Uh, you, rather than a, uh, a currency that is going to facilitate people actually producing something productive in the economy, it is going to uh, incentivize people to take get as much of that physical commodity as they can and to sit on it for as long as they can, uh, which is not really productive. Um, so I, I, once again, I think that it is not... Uh, uh, look, again, I'm not broaching the dogmatic debate. I'm just saying, if it works for you, use it. Now, uh, I would, I would, I'm going to try to provide more info or places, resources that people can use to find more information on all the ideas I'm talking about tonight. But actually, uh, I don't know of a simple online registry or or list of businesses that accept payment in precious metals specifically. So, if anyone knows that please share it with the audience. I think that's an important thing to have. I would understand if there are businesses that do not necessarily want it known that they will accept precious metals uh, or maybe even at a discount accept precious metals because maybe they don't want Uncle Sam to know about such things or the uh, the local equivalent, Uncle, Uncle Takayuki here in Japan. I don't know. Um, so uh, maybe there's that type of uh, disincentive for those businesses to be listed. But I, I would direct people to where they can go and find businesses that will uh, list their uh, 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 their precious metals trading. But I, again, I'm, I, I don't know of them. So please let me know. And now let's move to the next dogmatic, only this is money, which is crypto. There are the people who say crypto is the only, the, the solution, the shining beacon of solution for what uh, we're facing right now. And it's perfect. It's algorithmically generated so you can't you can't counterfeit it you can't fake it you know exactly how much exists you know the protocol so you know exactly how much will ever exist so it can't be inflated away uh and it's perfectly anonymous asterisk pseudonymous asterisk if you take eight thousand different precautions and use everything absolutely perfectly and store it only on the device that you've only ever used once and never connected to the internet and and write it down on a piece of paper anyway, and asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Yeah, okay. So again, um, again, I don't think I need to at least explain the concept of cryptocurrency to people out there. I'm sure you have heard about it in some form. 
at this point. If you have not, I would highly suggest you watch The Bitcoin PSYOP, which is an episode of my podcast that I produced, which is not what you think it is from that title. <laughs> Don't make that mistake, guys. Because <laughs> I get a lot of people who <laughs> think they know what that episode is about, that they do not know what it's about. But yes, there are, there are obviously cryptocurrencies that at the very least, they uh, no central bank needed for a cent, uh, for a cryptocurrency, they're going to try to, as I've been talking about recently, they're going to try to transition us off into central bank digital currency, and they're going to elide that difference and basically Bitcoin, Fedcoin, whatever you know that thing, that digital thing you've been hearing about. Here it is, guys. Take your central bank wallet. They're going to try to do that, but a real cryptocurrency does not need a central bank, does not need a middleman in the transaction. It is peer-to-peer. It's through a network that runs on a, a protocol that, well, different protocols work in different ways. So again, buyer beware as to what, what protocol you're using. Are you on Bitcoin? Are you using Bitcoin Cash? Are you using Monero or Zcash or 18,000 different varieties, as people probably know by now? Um, and it is a trustless payment system, uh, like, like gold um, or silver. It, you don't have to know anything whatsoever about the person that you're interacting with in any way, all you know is they've got the thing that they say they've got and they can physically hand it to you in the case of a precious metal. They can electronically send it to you in the case of crypto. So it's a trustless transaction. You don't need to know any details. And once it's done, it's done. Uh, now, again, so with the cons, uh, exactly like gold or precious metals, it is a commodity money. So the incentive, once again, is to hodl that money forever, which is exactly what Bitcoiners do. HODL is the uh, the term for that, in case you didn't know. And uh, and as any number of people will point out, and depending again what side of the dogmatic line you're on, the, the big con of cryptocurrencies is the Mad Max scenario, man. What if there's an EMP strike that takes out all electronics in the entire world for the rest of your life? Then where's your crypto there, huh, smart guy? Huh? <laughs> all right, well, if you are if your main concern about what currency you're using is whether or not there will be a worldwide catastrophe that wipes out all electronics forever tomorrow, then yes, you should definitely not even look at digital currencies, even in the short term, even for a day. <laughs> but I'm not sure my, uh, my contingency planning necessarily only looks at the Mad Max zombie apocalypse scenario as the only scenario we should be planning for. <laughs> it is a scenario, but I'm not... <laughs> I don't think that's the only thing we should be worried about. But anyway, as I say, that is a con. Um, it, you you need electricity and you need internet access. And, you know, the way things are going, internet access certainly shouldn't be taken for granted. It will probably become much harder when they uh, form, uh, perform the next cyber false flag to try to make internet access more difficult. So um, some resources that I could direct people to. Uh, there are some cryptocurrency merchant lists and buying items and services with Bitcoin type lists that I will put again in the show notes when this is posted to corporatereport.com later this week, if you're watching live. Um, but perhaps more importantly, uh, a service like agorist.market, which I talked uh, to Mike Swadek about recently. Uh, if people haven't seen that, go watch our interview uh, where I introduced that idea. Uh, basically, a service that just lists different businesses that will accept crypto and other forms of payment, including precious metals usually, but not always. Again, each seller can choose what they're listing. Uh, and potentially, at least these are people who are interested in agorism, so you could actually support something that's hopefully going to be part of the solution rather than the problem. Um, but 
again, there's so much to say about that, but let's leave that there. Let's start looking and exploring some different options for people who want to look at other options other than those dogmatic uh, diehards of the, the commodity money um, diehards. Let's look at, for example, uh, barter, barter exchange services. Now, again, this is the type of idea that hopefully if you're in a close-knit community, maybe with the Freedom Cell or some other small close-knit community of people that you know and trust, you could set up some sort of system whereby if somebody has a need, another person can say, hey, I've got that, and vice versa, and you can swap and share and lend and barter and exchange in that fashion, in a very direct fashion where there's no currency needed whatsoever, and hopefully you can help help each other out in tough times. Now, here's a specific example of that, because I want to point at specific examples as much as possible right now. There's a an app that apparently has just been released uh, called Have Need, and uh, please do not take this as some sort of promotion of this idea. Uh, zero. I am 0% guaranteeing any of this. I'm just pointing to it as something that exists that people might want to check out and start discussing with their community, with their freedom cell, with whatever, wherever you're discussing these ideas. Uh, we'll take this from shareable.net. They have a, an article up on multi-party bartering app saves time, money, and the environment. Uh, it says, if you had a guitar that you didn't need anymore, but you were in the market for a snowboard, the easiest and most frictionless exchange would be with someone who has a snowboard they want to offload and is interested in acquiring a guitar. But finding that person with exactly that need at the right time in the right place is a near Herculean task. What people want and need and what they have to offer in return are as varied and diverse as people themselves. Connecting people across this complicated web of needs and desires is exactly the challenge have need a new bartering app is attempting to address, a task other bartering companies and sales platforms like Facebook Marketplace, OfferUp, Nextdoor, and Craigslist have failed at in the past. And then they have a quote from the CEO, the answer to what I saw as the problem of not having a successful bartering company to date were that none of them had implemented a multi-party barter architecture. This addresses the core friction point of barter, which economists refer to as the mutual coincidence of wants. So anyway, uh, again, I think this is an interesting idea. This specific idea, again, I don't know anything about this app. I'm not promoting the app in per per particular. I'm just saying as a general idea, the idea of barter exchange uh, is uh, certainly as the pro of being uh, requiring nothing to start. All you have is what you have and what uh, I can lend this. I don't need this. I can give this away. And you can enter into a network with other people that hopefully you can find some sort of coincidence of wants, even if it's through a multi-party system, whereby you trade with this person who trades with that person who trades with that person who trades with you, etc. So uh, again, there are ways to facilitate exchange, but the cons of that, of course, that type of exchange is entirely trust-based. You have to have some sense of who's on the other side of that transaction. You have to have some community, some reason for being together in the first place. Generally speaking, I, you can create sort of wider apps for this, but that type of thing is largely trust-based, largely geographical. Uh, it, it, it's unlikely you're going to be exchanging things with people halfway around the world in order to get the snowboard that you wanted. Um, and again, it's extremely unlikely to produce really tangible and important results on unless it is extended to a very large scale. Again, in your tight freedom cell community, it might be good for very basic things that everybody has or everybody needs or everybody wants or those kinds of small level things. But for random items that you might come across that you desire, it's probably not going to fit the bill. So unless you have a very large scale implementation.
Uh, there are different um, ways to look at this and, and different ideas out there. It, it doesn't have to be direct barter. It can be um, lending uh, in various ways. Uh, for example, again, in your in your freedom cell community, your little group of people that you know and trust that are in your community and that you're working with together, hopefully you will have a list of things that, well, I have this, I have this. We don't all need an extension ladder. I've got one. If, you, if someone needs it, let me know. We don't all need a circular saw. I've got one. If, if someone needs it, let me know. That, that can be coordinated much easier, again, on a smaller scale. But again, it's probably less fruitful the less people you have involved in it. Um, so resources, uh, I'll throw in the link to haveneed.org. Again, I know nothing about this app in particular. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying it's an example and an idea to look at. And uh, I'll throw in a link to shareable.net where we got that article from, which... Uh, talks about a lot of these ideas in the sharing economy, the gifting economy, exchange networks, those kinds of things. Okay, let's move on to another specific idea. Uh, this one is the Volos Tem, T-E-M. And this is uh, from Volos, Greece, which is a port city in Greece that during the depths of the, financial, the Greek financial crisis came up with a, I won't say innovative, because it's actually just another iteration of an idea that's been tried many, many times, but it was somewhat successful in this case, at least at that time in 2011, 2012, it flourished, shall we say, in a, a relatively small area, but uh, it, it, it gained some traction. And this is an idea for a, a type of mutual credit uh, system based on LETS, which is the local exchange trading system, uh, which is a, an idea for mutual credit-based systems that uh, it had takes a million different forms and has flowered up in a million different places in different ways to varying results. One example is the Volos Tem, um, where Volos residents, the residents of that town, again, a small port town, I think 4,500 people. It was, it was a small place, but um, they could offer up their services uh, to their neighbors and get services in return. Um, basically something between a uh, a labor exchange trading system or a, low, a service exchange trading system and a barter system. Um, and a lot of businesses like cafes, for example, would exchange uh, a, a cup of coffee for some amount of euro and some amount of tem. And they were issued, uh, I don't believe they were notes. I think they, they were just keeping a, a paper ledger at one point, And I think they transitioned to digital. And it was uh, pretty popular. Um, there were, I, I think, uh, over a thousand people participating, a thousand different businesses, question mark, residents, question mark, participating uh, last time I was able to find any sort of numbers about it. Um, I don't point to the Volos Tem specifically as some sort of template to follow. Everyone should follow what they did in Volos. Um, precisely because, I, as I say, it did flourish in 2011, 2012. It was helping to facilitate transactions in that particular port city in Greece at that time. But, dot, 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 uh, I have found very little information in English about it since that time. There are there are a couple of articles I've found that have been written since that time that seem to indicate it is still ongoing. I don't know if it's still flourishing or thriving or many businesses are participating anymore, but it might be an example as a, of a survival currency. It's actually where I got, I think, the first my first indication that survival currency was a thing, because I remember following that story at that time. So if you type Volos or Tem into my search bar, you will find different articles and things that I've mentioned this in. Um, again, not as some sort of template that I think is a great answer, but it was an example of there was a currency, there was a community that had a lack of the currency. The euros were not flowing around in Greece at that time. So they used 
that system to help facilitate exchange. And it did help local businesses at least for a period of time. So it's an idea to at least examine. Um, the pros, it, again, it requires nothing to really get started with such a system. All it needs is people who are motivated to to, to join such a system and have something to offer goods or services. And generally in a time of crisis, if you have a community already in place, then that will be easy to start. The cons is that, uh, it, well, it requires a community of motivated people. <laughs> and uh, there's something called Metcalf's Law, which talks about networks being inversely proportional to the, what is it, the square of the number of users in that network, blah, blah, blah. It's a technical thing, but essentially it's the network effect. If you have a large number of people participating in something, a, a let's system or a time banking system, an hours system, there's lots of different variants on that idea. Uh, if you have a lot of people participating in it, it can be useful. If you do not, it probably isn't going to be useful. And that's the problem. It's the chicken and the egg question. So um, that could be a definite con to that type of approach. But uh, if you want more info on it, there is an official site for the Dvalos Tem that I'll throw in. I don't read or speak Greek. So maybe some Greek uh, people in the audience can, can take a look at that and find out more details about how it's uh, going currently. I'll throw in a link to a recent-ish article. It's only a couple years old about that at least mentions the Tem and how it's how it uh, flourished. I, again, I can't really see whether or not it's still flourishing. Um, I'll throw in a, uh, a Journeyman Pictures uh, a video that was produced in 2012 about the, the TEM and how it came about. That's interesting. Um, but on the more general idea of Let's Systems and uh, alternative community currencies, those types of programs, how they come about, how they can function. I'll throw in a book uh, called Money, Understanding, and Creating Alternatives to Legal Tender that is by Thomas H. Greco Jr. Uh, that I think was helpful for me. Uh, it's It provides a good overview of the problem and then it gets straight into different examples of different things that people are doing. The drawback with that book is it was published in 2001. So it is 20 years out of date. <laughs> uh, but I, I throw in this link specifically because that book is free on archive.org. So there you go. You can at least dip your toes into the water. If you are interested in more about Thomas H. Greco and his more recent work, I understand he's at beyondmoney.net. So I will suggest people will take a look at that. And I know that there is at least one acolyte of Greco in the Corbett Report community. So hopefully, again, when this gets posted to my website, he will be in the comments to answer any questions and direct people to more about the work of Greco. Um, but I, I found that book helpful in looking at a lot of different ways that this can be implemented. Again, um, that was just one particular one. Okay, next. Uh, Ithaca hours. Uh, let's get into a couple of warning type of stories, ways that this could go wrong and things that you should be prepared for when you're preparing your survival currency. Ithaca hours. And I say that actually as Ithaca Hours is often held up as kind of an example of how things can go right with alternative and local community currencies. Um, so Ithaca Hours was from Ithaca, New York. It was started uh, a couple of decades ago or a few decades ago. Uh, and it was a paper currency that was issued as part of a mutual credit system that was denominated in hours of work. So people were essentially pledging their labor into the system and then they could draw on that pledge of labor to purchase services from other people in the community using these paper notes that were then issued um, that were denominated in hours. So one hour, I can't remember, I think it was equivalent to $10, 10 US dollars when it was first issued, which was at that time when it was first issued uh, in the 
1990s, I want to say. I'm probably wrong on that. But at any rate, at that time, that was double the national um, minimum wage uh, in the US. So uh, one hour of work was equivalent to $10. And you could denominate your services in whatever you wanted. I mean, if you if your services were worth more than that, you could charge more multiple hours per hour of work, etc. Yada, yada. There, I mean, there's lots of details to that. But essentially, it was labor-based and was genera- generating value uh, that uh, through actual service to the community. Um, so the pros of that type of system that was set up there was that it, again, it facilitated trade where there is labor and, and people willing to work, but there is not enough money. Uh, the cons, as has been noted before, it's the kind of thing, it's great for getting a haircut. It's great for getting a massage, but it's not great for getting things you actually need, like eggs down, you know, down at the local supermarket probably rather than the farmer's market i mean it's it's useful in an, uh, in a certain realm um and i'm talking generally about these types of systems not necessarily specifically ithaca hours because ithaca hours actually was really quite popular and did persist for a very long time i believe a couple of decades before it fell into disuse um much longer than most of these alternative currency uh community currencies tend to last so that speaks to its credit. It was set up and it, it functioned and it thrived. And when I talked to the founder of Ithaca Hours back in 2014, uh, he did mention at that time that uh, the best estimate was that something like $7 million worth of economic transactions have been transacted in Ithaca Hours in that local community. That's phenomenal. That's absolutely incredible. But Ithaca Hours is no more. Uh, Paul Glover, who was the aforementioned creator, who I did interview, so I hope people will go and check out my interview with Paul Glover on that. Uh, he created the currency. He was the, the the evangelist who got it the ball rolling, who got people on board with it, who got the businesses to participate, who who made it happen. And when he left Ithaca and he left the community, it fell into disrepair. Um, as he has noted, it takes a full-time, at least one full-time representative in a community to be devoted to evangelizing and expanding a network in order for that community currency to actually flourish. So it is it is a significant investment of time and, and effort in order to keep these things going. And as soon as the, that person, the visionary who saw it and who helped bring it about, as soon as they leave these things often fall apart. And as I say, Ithaca Hours is probably one of the longest lived versions of this idea that has come along in recent years. So it was, uh, it's worth looking at uh, in terms of what can be done and what should be done and what shouldn't be done and how it, things fall apart. Because yes, once we get out of the survival currency mode and we're looking towards flourishing somewhere down the road, we'll have to think about such things. Um, so I will direct you to that. Uh, yeah, I understand he has a book on uh, on how to create a community currency as well that I will direct people to. Now, another warning example in terms of these examples is the miracle of Wurgle. Wurgle? Wurgle? I don't know. It's one of those crazy Austrian-German names with a umlaut on the O. So I'm... And a W, is it a V? Is it Wurgle? Wurgle? I don't know. I mean... Some Austrian in the crowd can no doubt chastise me for my terrible pronunciation, but then I will ask them to pronounce the name of the province directly to the east of my home province of Canada, and I can have a good laugh at your expense. Ha ha ha. And then we can both have a laugh at the capital city of that province. All right. But the miracle of Virgil, which I will 
decide on that pronunciation, uh, is an instructive example when it comes to these types of community currencies. So here's, here's the idea. In 1932, in the middle of the Great Depression, the Austrian town of Rügel was in trouble and prepared to try anything. Of its population of 4,500, a total of 1,500 people were without a job and 200 families were penniless. The mayor, Michael Unterguggenberger, <laughs> if you take nothing out of this presentation, just take that name, Unterguggenberger, had a long list of projects he wanted to accomplish, but there was hardly any money to carry them out. These projects included paving roads, streetlights, extending water distribution across the whole town, and planting trees along the streets. Rather than spending the 40,000 Austrian shilling in the town's coffers to start these projects off, he deposited them in a local savings bank as a guarantee to back the issue of a currency known as a stamp script. Stamp script. The Virgil money required a monthly stamp to be stuck on the circulating notes to keep them valid, amounting to 1% of the note's value. The price of the stamp was 1% of the note's value. A businessman named Silvio Gessel uh, came up with this idea in his book, The Natural Economic Order. Nobody wanted to pay for the monthly stamps, so everyone receiving the notes would want to spend them. The 40,000 shilling deposit allowed anyone to exchange script for 98% of its value in shillings, but this offer was rarely taken up. That was because the script could be spent as one, uh, spent as one shilling after buying a new stamp. The money raised with the stamps was used to run a soup kitchen that fed 220 families. The council not only carried out all the intended works, but also built new houses, a reservoir, a ski jump, and a bridge. The key to its success was the fast circulation of the script money within the local economy, uh, 14 times higher than the shilling. This increased trade and, un and employment. Unemployment in Virgil dropped while it rose in the rest of Austria. And then it's that idea. So the other towns in Austria were taking a look at this idea and they're saying, wow, what's going on? The miracle of Virgil, as it's known. Incredible. Wow. That's doing all these crazy things in the middle of the depression and it's, it's flourishing. What's going on? We should adopt it. So what happened? What happened to the miracle of Virgil? Well, that's instructive. And we'll take this from a, uh, an, an article written by Bernard Lieter, Lieter. <laughs> I should get that pronunciation right. A, a strategy for a convertible currency where he talked about this miracle of Virgil. He said no less than 200 cities of Austria decided to imitate Virgil. At this point, the Central Bank of Austria felt threatened in its monopoly of currency emission and blocked the extension of the system against the opinion of the vast majority of the population. This decision was appealed all the way to the Austrian Supreme Court, but was upheld. Wow. Surprise, surprise. It worked. It helped. It fostered. It helped the flourishing of a community and the, that community's economy and its, its actual productive activity during a depression. We can't allow that. Wait, whoa, whoa you're, at, you're issuing this without our approval? It's not going through our central bank? Uh-oh. No, 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 no. Not. We're going to squash that. And they did. Legally, of course, through the courts. It's the law of the land. What are you going to do? We got the guys with the guns. So this is another instructive example for people who are looking to create a survival currency because inevitably people in the crowd will say, well, yeah, sure. But if you create anything that actually works, they're going to come after it. Yep, absolutely. They're going to come after it. I would like to reiterate something that I noted on New World Next Week last week. Do you think there's a way out of this crisis that doesn't involve confrontation at some point? Do you think there's going to be a way to just 
create something new that'll thrive and completely replace the system that will never be challenged. That will net. No, no. Oh, okay. Oh, they've created something that will completely obliterate our system. Oh, well, ah, I'm melting. I'm melting. No, of course, of course, there is going to be confrontation. And I think we have to understand that, prepare for that in the ways that are possible, but also mentally prepare ourselves for what that might mean. And maybe, maybe if there is to be another miracle of Virgil, uh, perhaps the residents of that future hypothetical Virgil will have to not lay over, roll over and lay down when the supreme high court of the land tells them to do so. And what does that mean? And where does that go from there? Mm some extremely important things to be decided, but this is all part of the fun of going through the Great Reset, and more importantly, the Greater Reset. And these are competing agendas, so we better we better understand that, and we better be prepared for that. All right, um, so, so much more to say on this subject, obviously, and as I say, I will have links to all of the things that I've talked about in the show notes for this when it is posted to my website. But that's going to have to do it, I think, for this presentation. Uh, please, please, please look into these ideas. This is so important. This is a fundamental thing, and it's already happening. Once again, remember Operation Choke Point. Oh, that's totally in the past. They'll never do that again. Well, yeah, they will. And so we have to be prepared for that. We have to start survival currency. Thank you for your time and attention tonight. Excellent. Excellent. Great job, James. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. And yeah, you say the uh, Operation Choke Point, that's actually why I can't accept credit card or debit card for my Kratom business, Brave Botanicals. It's because of Operation Choke Point. So it's a very real thing. It's not something on the horizon. Before we let you go, Derek's going to say goodbye, but we wanted to take one question from the audience. And this one comes from uh, YouTube, Blackbird with James Gentleman. He does a podcast. He had Derek on recently to promote this. So thank you so much for that, James. Uh, the question is, now that the pandemic narrative is winding down, what's next? That is an interesting question. I would uh, I would dispute the premise. I do not think the <laughs> pandemic narrative is winding down. I think it's ramping up. And perhaps, perhaps the COVID-19 scamdemic narrative maybe might come to an end this year. I'm not even ben- betting on that, but it might. But that does not mean that the, the the overall narrative is going to wind down. We are just stepping into the biosecurity paradigm, which I've been talking about, blowing the horn about as loud as I can for the past year. This is this is the transition into an entirely new paradigm. And just as the way the war of terror was the underlying fabric of the reality they were trying to weave around us for the first couple of decades of this century, this will be the the, the fabric until the next whatever comes along. So I I do not think that this is winding down. In terms of where is this going and what will this ultimately develop into, I am actually writing a series of articles about that right now. The first two have already been issued. The first one was on currency. Uh, 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 Presciently enough, I knew I was going to be talking about that tonight, so I, I got a head start. And the second one was on biosecurity and all the things that are coming along this. The third part, which will be released this coming weekend, is on geopolitics. So that is available on my site. And I think there are some very in- important things that are happening right now that actually kind of weave all of these things together because the current monetary paradigm is ending 
the dollar as king is ending, but in a controlled fashion, they want to bring in the central bank digital currencies to replace that. At the same time, this scandemic narrative is transitioning the economy over into something else and setting up a new geopolitical reality where we're starting to see things like the COVID vaccine passports. Well, each country will decide which vaccines they're going to allow for their vaccine passports. Oh, you've got the China vaccine? No, 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 no. You need the Pfizer vaccine, et cetera, which is going to create an, a, an entirely new over, overhang on terms of, in terms of the geopolitical reality that is preparatory to the setup for the World War III, at the very least Cold War narrative that we're heading into, that as yeah. I've talked about many, 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 many times before, is absolutely as fake and staged as the original Cold War narrative was. If you need more on that, look at the work of Anthony Sutton, who laid it out in black and white. I think we're seeing the exact same thing with the setup for a China-US conflict that's going to be equally fake and staged, but may result in very real loss of life and certainly will result in loss of liberties, already is. That's mm -hmm. unfortunately where things are heading unless and until we press the greater reset button through things like survival currency. And obviously survival currency is about surviving right in the here and now amongst the people in your community. The end goal of this, or at least not the end goal, but it's a further goal is to, to try to create something that will thrive independently of the system and to grow that and flourish in that way. That's, that's our vision for a people's reset that we have to oppose against that that scandemic vision that uh, is helping to to bring about this this new normal. Thank you so much, James. What do you got, Derek? All right, everybody, give it up for James Corbett one more time. Thank you again, brother. We appreciate you. you joining us tonight, and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Again, that is CorbettReport.com. Check out James Corbett there. And again, we have people watching from all over the world right now, people who stayed up super late, our friends in Europe. We appreciate everybody who's here in person in Ziwa and everybody who's gathering, hosting watch parties elsewhere. This is night one. We're going to do this five nights and then one afternoon on Sunday. For those who haven't heard, we did add a bonus day. It won't be in person, but it will be for free online again Sunday uh, starting at noon. We have a whole other host of speakers. And I just wanted to make a couple quick notes before I say goodbye myself. First thing is, one of the reasons we're meeting this week is to counter the World Economic Forum Great Reset Agenda. I, mean, I don't know if you guys know that, but they are actually meeting right now. And they had a meeting earlier today. And one of the things they talked about is how to build trust with vaccines and how to move forward. So they're, you know, you can kind of see on screen, this, they're having their agenda, their live stream at the same time we're doing that. That's why we chose this week, so that we're not sitting at home and obsessing what they're, about what they're doing, but thinking about how we can be proactive. So I just wanted to make that note. And in line with that, We've had watch parties all over. We had some friends did, that did send us a picture uh, from Colorado, I believe, right? Yeah, Colorado. And shout out to Bruce and the Freedom Family in Colorado. We want to see your pictures. Wherever you're watching from, send us pictures, post on social media, use the hashtag, the greater reset, and we will pick things up again tomorrow. My last note before I pass it to John, we already had somebody email me Spanish translations of the first three talks. They transcribed them and translated them and turned them into MP3s. So we have those. We'll be posting those on our website as well. You can share with your Spanish-speaking friends. If anybody else out there can translate, we, we need to get this information in any language, every language possible. That's how we're going to create a true international movement. So I'm going to pass it back to John. Thank you guys for being here with us. Right on. Thank you so much, Derek. Man, today has been absolutely uh, incredible. We've heard from quite a few 
really powerful folks. And again, it's the greater reset activation. That was Derek's idea. He's like, let's call it an activation, right? Instead of a conference or festival, it's all about getting activated. So we're hoping that we've inspired you to action and that you are going to take some of these ideas and implement them in your life. I want to remind you again, if you have not yet joined the Freedom Cell Network, please do. You go to freedomcells.org and you can register for the site, get access to that back end. Now, a lot of people treat this as a social media site, or they say, hey, is that just another social media site? But at the end of the day, what it's all about is connecting people, finding the others so we can work together to build a better world so we can reset what's taking place and create more freedom. And one of the best features is this member map. So you put an address down the street or the park down the road and check it out. This is Central Texas. I feel blessed to be here in Central Texas. There's over 240 people within 200 miles of Austin, Texas. And so you can find people in your area. Just zoom in on the map. Here's Will here today. So again, check that out, freedomcells.org. And this is a global network. There's over 13,000 people, 13,500. It's growing as this event takes place. So again, that's freedomcells.org. And I want to invite you, if you appreciate what we're doing, this is a grassroots volunteer organization, right? Uh, to be honest, the funding for everything that we're doing, which is starting to gain in in volume as we take on more stuff and we expand our infrastructure, uh, it's coming a little bit out of my pocket. It's mainly coming out of Derek's pocket. And you not only is a, a tireless activist, but he's also helping to financially contribute to this stuff. So we've had four to 5,000 people tuned in today. There's 13,500 people in the Freedom Cell Network. We'd like to invite you to contribute uh, your energy um, by making a financial donation. We can take cryptocurrency, BTC, BCH, Venmo, and there's also credit card and debit card, although we definitely prefer the crypto, and that's how um, some of our contractors get paid. So we want to grow this network. We want to continue to bring this amazing information, and we want to keep up what we're doing because there's a whole lot of momentum and a whole lot of beautiful things taking place. Now, remember, this ends on Friday, so we still have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday of some really amazing content for you. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about education and health. We're going to be learning about the nitty gritty details of how the fourth industrial revolution is being rolled out in local communities. Julianne Romanello, she does a lot of great work. We're going to talk about unschooling, world schooling, all these alternative ways to educate your children that's more in line with their freedom and their their values we got the folks from Green Med Info that are going to drop some really solid knowledge on us. Richard Grove, I don't know if you guys have seen his work before, but this guy is so on point, such an intellectual, such a powerful communicator. He's going to talk to us about vaccinating our minds and, and up in our intellectual immune system. And then finally, we're going to talk to Dolores Cahill, who has really been doing a lot of great work in the wake of COVID. And they're like, you need to have a vaccine to fly or one of these COVID immunity passports. And she's like, well, why don't we just start our own airlines? So, again, it's all about innovation, proactive steps to find freedom. We're not going to get trapped in some state of disillusionment. We are going to recognize that there's some big problems going on in the world and we are going to create a better world. So thank you so much for tuning in. Share the stream with your friends. Check us out at thegreaterreset.org, thegreaterreset.org. It all kicks off tomorrow at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. All right, we're going to play out. Peace. Peace.